Austin all over Diesel. Come on, Austin. in the corner. And fucking man, Austin eliminated. Austin, wait a minute. He was in there for 34 minutes. Yeah, the referees can see it. Austin has been eliminated. Wait a minute. The Undertaker and Peter have both just been eliminated. But Austin and Peter have been eliminated. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to January of 1997 for volume one of this month's show. Happy New Year to everyone. We've got three volumes for this month across four different shows. This is volume one, look at the WF and the Royal Rumble. Volume two is split into two parts, thanks to WCW having a clash and a pay-per-view, so Volume 2, Part 1, looks at all the TVs and the clash in the first half of the month. And the second half looks at NWO sold out and the remaining Nitro for the month. And Volume 3 is all of our usual ECW action. Joining me here in Volume Number 1 is Wayne Lithgow. Wayne, good evening. Uh, good evening, Bob. Uh, and Jeff Parker. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Bob. Uh, Jeff, kick us off with the news. All right. So, Stone Cold Steve Austin won the Royal Rumble in a contentious finish where officials missed his elimination. He dived back into the ring and last eliminated Brett the Hitman Hart. The show, held in front of 62,000 people at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas, also saw Shawn Michaels regain the WWF title, beating Sid. Austin's victory doesn't give him a place in the WrestleMania main event. That he will that will be decided in a four corners match between him, Hart, The Undertaker, and Vader at In Your House next month. Elsewhere on the show, there were wins for Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Ahmed Johnson, Vader, and the team of Hector Garza, Pero Aguayo, and Kanek. The decision to have Austin win the Rumble, rather than Bret Hart, seems to be in response to the predictability of Hart winning the match. It probably wasn't helped that Vic Venom, a.k.a. Vince Russo, basically gave away the win, Hart win on Livewire, a show that is being retooled as they can't realistic or it live anymore. 
Shotgun Saturday Night debuted this month, airing live from a variety of small locations in New York and for the Rumble show, San Antonio. The show received largely poor reactions from fans, many of the attempts to create an edgier product, including promoting a sex tape of Sonny and Goldust being pregnant, fell flat. Monday Night Raw will expand to two hours next month, with ratings continuing to struggle opposite Nitro. The loaded post-Rumble show still lost out heavily to Nitro, featuring the return of Randy Savage to Nitro. While the expansion might seem counterintuitive, and there are questions over how the show will be funded, it's felt that running at 8 p.m. for an hour simply provided a great lead-in for the second hour of Nitro. With Raw usually taped in quite big blocks. An extra date has been added at the Manhattan Center next month to accommodate an extra set of tapings. It's also said there is a plan to run live more often, although by doubling the length of the show, this will likely happen anyway, as they'll have to tape on more nights. Interestingly, the idea of moving nights, mooted a few months ago, doesn't seem to be on the table. Although one episode of Raw next month will be on a Thursday to accommodate the Westminster Dog Show. Much like WCW, who enjoyed a great month of live gates, the WWF have had a good month on that front. In San Jose, they drew over 10,000 fans, which is their biggest attendance in months. In El Paso, they drew a sellout of over 5,000, and they drew the largest crowd for a wrestling event ever in Stockton, California. The Royal Rumble ended up drawing a paid attendance of just over 48,000, although tickets were being sold at a very cheap prices in the local area leading up to the show. WWF will be doing a tournament in Germany next month to crown a European champion. Jim Cornette's on-screen role has all but disappeared as his role at Titan Studios has kept him too busy to be at the live events. There are rumors that Cornette may be being phased out and that Paul Heyman and Vince McMahon may be closer than people know. And rumors linking the Harlem Heat to the WWF may just be that, may be just that, I apologize, as it said that Vince McMahon doesn't want to give out guaranteed money to a tag team, particularly particularly while there isn't much space for them at live events. And just a reminder this, you'd like to say thank you for our contribution to your podcast month. You can do so via Patreon for five bucks a month. We're offering early access to shows where possible. This month has been a mess on that front, as I haven't edited any of them at the time taping this. Uh, but ordinarily, there'll be shows available for the patron, uh, patron contributors for five bucks a month. Or if you just want to say thank you, you can find out more information by going to patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs, visiting our website or in the podcast description. On the rating front, and another clean sweep for WC. CW as their ratings follow the upward trend of many of their other metrics. On December the 30th, they showed once again they were more immune to the holidays than Raw was, doing a 3.6 to Raw's 1.6. January 6th, saw Nitro drew a 3 to Raw's 2.1. January 13th, a 3.4 to Raw's 2.3. Any hopes that the post-Raw Rumble show might quell the Nitro run fell down as Nitro did a 3.7 to Raw's 2.2. And on January 27th, it was much the same, Raw doing a 2.2 to Nitro doing a 3.6. Raw for 1997 begins with Vader hyping his main event match against Ben Hart later tonight, plus some clips from Shotgun Saturday night, including Armored Johnson giving a Nation member a Pearl River plunge on the roof of a car. Our first match is a tough guy contest between Owen Hart and Mankind. These two mesh extremely well in the 10 minutes they are given. 
Owen shows some real aggression in this match and uses both his Slammy Award and Tag Title Belt as weapons. Mankind responds with a drink tray to the head and he eventually wins after a stump pile driver. Sean is backstage with Jose Lothera and his son Pete. Jose will stay in Sean's corner at the Alamo Dome. Sean says it doesn't matter if Sid uses a camera, a billy club or the kitchen sink at the Rumble. He also wouldn't dare ever interfere in a bet Bret Hart match, or Ben Hart even I suppose. We can see clips of the nation attempting to destroy Ahmed Johnson at Shotgun Saturday night, plus a match between the Goldwins and well, the Flying Nuns. That's Mother Schmucker and Sister Angelica. Honky Tonk Man is on commentary as 1997 apparently is no bearing for age or people being over the hill as he continues his search for a protege. Furnace and Lafon are with Diesel and Razor as ever. The two look great, that's Furnace and Lafon. They deservedly win with a Doomsday Device Jackknife Roll-Up combination. Another clip from Shotgun Saturday Night as Marlena helps Goldust in his match versus the Sultan by, well, stripping. Brief interview with Brett follows. He says he wants Sean to stick his nose in his business, but before he can get to his thoughts on Vader, Sid's music interrupts him. Brett walks off dejectedly. JR talks to Sid in the ring. Sid is not intimidated by nothing, and he won't apologise for his action. The day I was born, I was born a man. Sean comes to ringside and then dances and strips on the table. Sid wants to apologise for what he's going to do, because he's not going to be responsible. Our main event of Bret Hart and Vader begins. Vader hits you so hard that when you wake up, your clothes are out of style. Not that that's a problem for Bret. Not Sean on commentary. Another good match sees Austin attack Bret from behind, allowing Vader to hit the Vader bomb and get the three. On the 13th of January Raw, we begin by seeing footage of Austin attacking Bret from behind and then pilmanising his ankle from yesterday's edition of Superstars. Our opening match is Helmsley Lawler against Mero and Goldust. A nothing match eventually sees Goldust get Helmsley caught in the ropes, then choke him until the bell rings for the DQ. Goldust sells frustration and even gets in a couple of shots on Mero afterwards. Sid cuts a promo in the empty Alamo Dome. He tells us that to take what is his at the Rumble, he will have to become a monster. When he wraps his hand around Sean's throat, Jose Lothario and Sean's family and friends will know exactly what the look on his face shows. Sid comes across as genuinely menacing here. Sean responds live from San Antonio. He might not be a big monster, but if he needs to get nasty, then he will. The WWF have put pressure on Sean for two years, but he has delivered better results than the US Postal Service and will do so again. Bret Hart limps out to ringside for guest commentary for British Bulldog against Rocky Maivia. Bret calls the WWF a lawless land. The match spills to the outside and Austin takes the Bulldog out from behind and gives him a Stone Cold Stunner. Bret hobbles to the back after Austin and Rocky wins by countout. Our main event pits The Undertaker against Crush. After a few minutes, Undertaker blocks the heart punch and hits a chokeslam. The Nation and Vader run in for the DQ. They are eventually able to beat The Undertaker down, with Vader hitting two Vader bombs. Iron runs in with a 2x4, but the heels are able to do a number on him too. See, over a hundred years ago, a great German philosopher, he said, in the act of fighting monsters... And the procedure, be sure that you don't become a monster yourself. But in the Alamo Dome, I will have to be the monster to take what is mine. To walk out 
the World Wrestling Federation champion. And I think Shawn Michaels would say the same thing. But as the battle progresses, and at the right moment, I reach out, Shawn, and I have you by your throat. The look that you will give to me will be obvious. For over here, it rings that will be your mother. And she will know that look, too. And then all the way over here will be Jose. He will know that look, too. But this time, he won't get on the apron because he knows better. And then someone told me that this section over here was going to be nothing but your friends from your hometown, John Michaels. And Jose, you are going to summon all the Mexicans from Mexico. And all above here, all above here they will be. 70,000 of them. And even at the highest seat in the roof. He will know that look too. And that look. It says it all. It says, Sid, you are the man. You are the master. No Raw to discuss this month, um, but we have, as we, we did briefly mention in the news, look, seeing the debut of a, a new show, Shotgun Saturday Night, uh, a show shot live um, on Saturday evenings in nightclubs and cafes, predominantly in New York, although as it was the live on Rumble weekend, they were in San Antonio for that, um, and I got the guys to, to watch the second show of the run, as from reports that I've seen this month, that seemed like it was the worst, and also it seemed like that was the show that seemed to be the catalyst for a few changes in how they they uh, they promoted it going forward. So I thought we'd kind of have a quick look through at exactly what the what the what people thought and what we can we can look at that. Uh, Wayne, what did you think of the second episode that we saw? The episode wasn't great. I think the premise of Shotgun Saturday Night has got potential with the way that they're, they're looking to move a, a little bit edgier, competing more on, on the WCW Nitro front. But this particular episode itself was uh, was, was just bad from start to finish when there's obviously going to be a few talking points in there which uh, is, is getting me to think, how did they actually get permission to do such things? What were the positives, Wayne? I know that's, a, that's a weird question, not one we ask that often, um, but I think there were some. Mm. The the fact that it's it's different to what you what you used to uh, on Raw, I think obviously with the way that the market's going, you can tell that you know the likes of WCW is getting a much younger audience now. Um, I think that's the only positive that I could I could see from it is that uh, differentiate yourself from Raw, make it a lot edgier, uh, and you know try and uh, bring in a new market which is competitive to WCW. Jeff, what do you think? Uh, I thought it looked tacky and cheap and low rent, uh, kind of like an ECW show. Uh, you know, I I get going edgier. It just it it felt like you know when all those old territories used to run, to, you know, Saturday morning tapings at like studio audience type settings. It, it kind of looks low rent, and I don't know. It just it 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 didn't really strike a vibe with me. Maybe they can improve with the core concept and make it again seem a little more edgier and just clean things up, but just the presentation for me felt like 
there was a bar that also happened to be holding wrestling instead of it being a wrestling show. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot left to be desired on my on my front. Yeah, I mean, the, the show we saw of the four probably visually looked different to, I mean, I've seen bits of the two of the other three. Um, and the first one was in a kind of New York nightclub, which was kind of all very dark and interestingly lit. The third one was in San Antonio, which was quite similar to the New York one, you know, quite a low ceiling, quite a dark venue and all that kind of thing. The second one was in a what they call the All-Star Cafe in New York. So it looks a lot brighter, a lot more visually interesting. And I, I thought that was one of the positives. I don't know if there were that many, but I, I thought visually it looked different. And I, for trying something a bit out of the box, um, but... I think it was more misses than hits. And just talking about a, a a show promoting Sonny's home sex video, I mean, you know, the idea is being edgy, but that's not edgy. Like, you know, that's just setting your, setting your audience up in a way. I don't think many of them believed it, but it's setting them up for a disappointment, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's poor taste. It's exploitative. It's, you know, kind of appealing to that lowest common denominator of the teenage boy wrestling fan and... I mean, I guess if you want to set the tone for that show to be, you know, kind of close to X-rated Watts, still, you know, PG or whatever, I mean, it's not going to be, there's not going to be any real sex tapes. Um, you know, I, I guess if you're trying to change the image, you do that. But, I mean, I think there are ways this could work, but I don't see it being, you know, kind of lascivious and kind of smarmy. It just, I, it, it doesn't work for how I think they, I, I think if WWF wants to look at where they can improve, it's getting talent over and getting young talent over and building guys. It's not, it's not trying to be, you know, edgier. That doesn't, that doesn't really do it for me, at least, at least in this uh, framework. Yeah. Get, get good talent over that happen to be edgy rather than get edgy talent over whether or not they're good. I think is, is that what you're getting at, Jeff? Oh, yeah, basically. I mean, I think the one guy that I felt got over, well, the two guys that I felt got over over these, you know, shotgun shows were Austin when he was doing his commentary because he was allowed to kind of swear. And, and he's he's such a quick-witted guy that everything he said is edgy and authentic. And authenticity is, is really the key to edginess, right? If a guy just comes out there and, and swears, it doesn't really mean anything, it doesn't get over. But Austin has that kind of venom and bite to his to his words and the other guy of course was terry funk who who his promo in san antonio i thought was just awesome and i'm I'm a huge terry funk fan but his he again comes across as authentic now if they can just find a 25 year old guy who could do a promo like that then they're in the, the the business of making money uh terry funk's i don't think 25 although he can work better than any 25 year old right now um He's older than anybody else who's 25, but uh, that would be kind of the, the the framework I would look at. I would look at, you know, getting guys over with great promos, maybe a little more edgier, but, uh, yeah, that's that's where I stand. Well, your thoughts on a similar kind of thing, the, the attempted edginess? I mean, I, I don't inherently think it's a bad idea, but I think what they tried, they got wrong, largely on the show that we looked at. Yeah, I mean, like Jeff said initially, um, you know, it's just, it's, trying to be as close to ECW without actually being ECW or as explicit as, as ECW. Um, I don't necessarily know that that's true. I, I almost wonder whether it's them thinking they're trying to be like ECW without actually watching ECW. Because this didn't remind me of ECW at all. Um, in the, 
you know, all right, as a smaller audience, it might have reminded Jeff visually of ECW. Yeah, yeah, okay, that. But in terms of the structure and in terms of what they were doing, like we, you know, Jeff talks about getting guys over. ECW, get guys over that are edgy. This kind of felt like, yeah, we've seen, you know, Savio Vega, Diesel, Mark Merrow, these guys aren't inherently edgy characters. Yeah, I think Jeff's right. I mean, I've seen the... I've seen the bit of the third show, we'll play it in a minute, the bit from the third show with Austin and with Funk. That was really good. But that's because Steve Austin has an edgy character already. And so, well, Terry Funk's just Terry Funk. I mean, he's, a, he's an anomaly uh, at his age. But, you know, sorry to cut you off, Wayne, but that was that was kind of my thought. I think it was almost like them thinking, let's try and be like ECW without having seen ECW. Maybe. I could, I'd, I'd probably go with the point of saying that I could you know, probably imagine an ECW show building up a, a sex tape. But I could probably imagine that it would actually be a sex tape and, and not Elmo. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but... Oh, my <laughs> Try to be edgy yeah. and that's your payoff. Uh, I mean, you probably said that the, the headbangers, they were, you know, edgy characters. Um, or characters who were, who were edgy or the other way around. Um, kind of like losing my point where I'm up to now, but... Uh, yeah, that was, you know, I, I personally thought that it, it did seem like an ECW show. Um, that, that's my personal uh, opinion, anyway. Yeah, um, I just don't know that we need to hear Vincent Mann say, who will we see have sex with Sonny tonight? You know, like, I, I don't... That's not anything, you know what I mean? That's just... That, that's just, you know, that's not being edgy. Like, like it, it's only edgy if you can play it off. Steve Austin works because he can be edgy in a in an environment that they're in. Everything else is just what it is. And here's the thing, right? I, there, there are a few things I can guarantee. There are very few things I can guarantee. But let me tell you this. No show in the history of mankind with a duet of Honky Tonk Man and Todd Pettengill is going to get over with anyone. <laughs> I can at least say that. Um, I'll tell you what, Jeff, as you've seen it, let me tee up this Terry Funk promo. We'll have a quick chat about it. I don't think Wayne's, Wayne's watched it. Um, but we'll listen to that, and then once we've covered that, we'll get into the rumble. All right, we're back here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Texas legend. Terry Funk! What? Oh my goodness, Terry Funk is here! Well, that's a surprise. I knew he'd be in the Rumble tomorrow. How about that? On pay-per-view. Terry Funk would tell me what the hell Terry Funk's doing here. Terry Funk, one of the all-time greats, and indeed, Texas own, ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 no. He might be from Texas, but I'm Texas own, son. I own the state. Oh, yeah! Is he a legend? Oh, yeah, no. let's listen to him run his fat trap. This is my state! Wrong. This is my town! Wrong. I'm in the heart of Texas! Wrong. Where I want to be, Pettengale! This is where I want to be! I'm going to be there very long. And everybody out here knows that I'm a windmilling, pile-driving, neck-breaking, back-breaking, bear-hugging, wrist-locking, knee-dropping, toe-holding, <laughs> son of a son of a gun, meaner than a rattlesnake, tougher than shoe leather, and more dangerous than a hollow-eyed scorpion. And I am ready to rumble! And that means he's ready to take you on, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I got a couple of knuckle sandwiches I brought with me. I'll just feed those to him if he gets hungry. I want to know what number I'm going to be in that ring. What number am I going to be number one, 
Where am I going to be 29? Could be number 15. You could be number 5. Doesn't Nobody knows. The hell with number 15. Going to be over the top. Right I want to walk out there with that first man, George Bush, and the representatives of Texas designated me as their Texas member. I want to start the rumble, and I want to end the rumble. And I want to start that rumble, not tomorrow night. How about a one-sided rumble with you right now, Pitt and Dale? Throw your carcass on the top of with you. Idiot. With you. Well, is there somebody else out there? I am looking for anybody. Don't look too far. Where is a person that wants to rumble with me? There's not a person in the WWF that wants to rumble with me. Not a person in the WCW. Those bunch of snakes, sucking scumbags. They don't have an athlete enough for me. I'm looking around here. Where's Vince McMahon? That Yankee bastard. I realize this is live. Hey, him. give me the microphone. How about rumbling with you? Your mother's a whore. Shut up, you old bag of wind. Why don't you rumble a little bit? Do you want to rumble, Ben Gale? No. No, you don't. Is there anybody here? We're live, ladies and gentlemen. Where are you, Jim Ross? From San Antonio, Texas, in the ring. Where are you? You legendary asshole. Fuck. Where are you? Again, it's a shotgun Saturday night. Oh, oh. And I think we apologize for some of those remarks, but Terry Buck has just fought a little close to Boston. He's wasting valuable airtime. He's calling you out. Don't Steve Austin. Do you want a rumble? Do you have the guts? Why don't you just uh, cool your jets there, Mr. Austin? Wait a minute. Here comes Buck right over here. Oh, he's a senile old man. Don't cross the guardrail, son. You ain't that stupid. Uh, he's he's tough, you are. He and he's here to fight, Steve. Wait a minute. Huh? Oh, really? Hey, wait a minute. Hey, hey, hey. I'm not in this, okay? How about a couple of Jericho taps, son? Terry Buck, ladies and gentlemen, taking advantage of the little rock. I'm going to get a knuckle sandwich to go along with those Jericho taps. I'll lay down on the ground for you, Austin. You ain't got to lay down for me, son. I'll knock your ass down. You better get back in the ring. I'm going to count to three. Look, he already started walking. That's what I figured. Yeah, that's what I figured, too. He could come out here and try to call my bluff. I'm a little smarter than that, son. Look at him. He thinks he's really special. Uh He's a complete idiot. Come on. He's an icon. Yes, he is. He's a jackass. Let's go ahead and bottom line it. Jerry Buck, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I ain't going to put up with this crap, man. Well, let's take the, let's take the Terry Funk joke. What do you mean? Ah, it's not the Terry Funk joke. Don't call Steve Austin. Headed back to the locker room. Oh, well, wait a minute. Right here. Wait a minute. Don't call Jeff, there are a few. We talk about things you can rely on and things being consistent. Um, but I can say for certain that Terry Funk being Terry Funk is entertaining whatever it looks like. Absolutely. Uh, the guy is, uh, even at his elevated age, he's an MVP caliber performer uh, whenever he's called upon. I mean, if you think about, you know, two decades ago, he was the NWA world champion. Since then, he's had runs that have gotten over in, you know, the NWA in the late 
80s. I mean, he had a great run with WWF as a tag with, with Dory or Haas Funk, uh, you know, in the mid-80s when they were running so fast and so hard. But then he goes, works Flair, and then he goes, does all the stuff with ECW and, and completely reinvents himself with the death matches in Japan. And then he can come back here and go toe-to-toe with Austin. And, you know, even though he's he's older, he, he, his promo is just so precise. And again, I keep going back to when you book an authentic character and a guy who, who like Terry Funk, you believe it, it lands and it resonates. And I think that's where I think Austin is starting to land and resonate is because when he says things, there's impact in his words. He knows and he backs it up what he's saying. And then everything kind of has value. If you invest in, you know, if you invest in the product and the fans will invest in it and then the payoffs are so much better. And I, I feel like when you have a, a role, now he's a role player at this point, but a role player like Terry Funk who can come in and, and work something short with Austin like this on Shotgun Saturday Night, um, it makes everybody look good. And it kind of makes you forget about the Elmo stuff because this was really, really good. I, I, I loved everything. I loved, you know, Funk was cutting the promo and Austin's on commentary. He said, no, no, no. Like he's, he's just completely ad-libbing on it. And Funk is getting, I mean, he's getting a little R-rated in his promo, and that's edgy, and now the fans are going, whoa, he's probably not supposed to say that stuff. You know, he's calling Todd Pettengill's mother a whore. I mean, it, it got a little blue, but it felt like, okay, this is just Terry Funk, and he's crazy. So, uh, you know, it, it just it totally played for me. I loved it. I thought that's the type of thing I want on my wrestling program, whether it's Shotgun or Raw or Nitro or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean... I think you, you know, we kind of touched it before anyway, but I think you might be right. I don't think Shotgun Saturday Night is needs to be an edgy show. I think it needs to be an authentic show. And this was kind of what I was mentioning when we were talking about characters that aren't edgy. It's just, you know, Savio Vega and his current character doesn't particularly feel authentic or cool. The same can be applied for Mera. The same can be, or God knows, for Diesel. And it's just like, you know, you don't... And this is kind of a big concern I've got with where Bret Hart's going right now, is that the Bret stuff feels a little forced. And not hugely, but a little. It kind of feels like Austin's being an authentic version of Steve Austin to a point, and that's working. And Shawn Michaels, we're just seeing more of the human being Shawn Michaels. That feels real. That feels authentic. Sid's still a gimmick, but Sid's just, you know, the, the incumbent. Undertaker's a gimmick. Bret Hart, like, Bret Hart felt authentic last year. Bret Hart, I almost feel like Bret Hart's the control. If you're going to push everyone else out there, leave Bret where he is, because that feels real. And this is kind of, I think, the bigger thing with the show. It's, it's almost like they've got a good concept for a show, but they don't have the right roster for it. It's like you're trying to plug in these quite vanilla acts for Saturday morning superstars and WWF mania and things like that. You're trying to plug them into a show where their characters just don't fit. Rocky Maivia is not a character that fits on this kind of show. I don't think Honky Tonk Man is either. Um, and that, I think, is the bigger problem. I don't think the format's actually that bad. I don't dislike the idea of a, a show that visually looks different, a show where people can be a bit more mouthy and sweary. But it's like, and this this kind of comes back to the ECW comparison. Wayne, you might be right. This might be an it's, it's like an ECW show without ECW characters. 
And ECW characters are the show. You can't just, you couldn't put an episode of Raw in front of the ECW arena and say, this is WWF being edgy. So, well, no, if the, if the characters are still, you know, Rick Bogner being a knockoff version of Razor Ramon and Savio Vega, it's still going to suck. Um, and I think that's it. But it was something interesting to review. We did it a couple of months back with, with, with Livewire as well. I'll keep an eye on it. I don't get the sense, you know, I think another thing as well, and we'll discuss this later on, I don't get the sense they've got the roster to, to fill two hours of Raw, their existing weekend commitments, and a, a shotgun Saturday night and make all of it feel relevant because I think they're going to spread their talent too thin. I almost wonder whether shotgun Saturday night should kind of be a show in its own right. Promote a few different guys with a few different edgier characters and almost build up one against the other. That is that. Anyway, Cover some more. T- we've got some more TV. I think have we? Let me think. We've got. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, Jeff, kick us off with the results for the Royal Rumble. All right. So uh, the 1997 Royal Rumble, emanating from San Antonio, Texas, uh, started off with an Intercontinental Title match in which Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who was the champion, was accompanied by uh, his butler, Mr. Hughes. He defeated Goldust with Marlena at uh, 16 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, in the second match of the evening, Ahmed Johnson defeated Ron Simmons, a.k.a. Farouk, who was accompanied by an entire uh, gang of Nation of Domination members, including uh, PG-13, Clarence Mason, Crush, and uh, Ahmed Johnson won by DQ in about 8.48. Uh, the next match in the Royal Rumble 1997, 1997 was Vader, accompanied by Paul Bearer, uh, defeating The Undertaker in about 13 minutes and 19 seconds. Uh, in a Lucha Libre match uh, with the competitors emanating from AAA, Hector Garza, Pero Aguayo Sr., and Kanek defeated Jerry Estrada, Heavy Metal, and Fuerza Guerrera in uh, about 10 minutes and 56 seconds. And then in the Royal Rumble match itself, Stone Cold Steve Austin quote, one, unquote, the Royal Rumble, last eliminating the greatest wrestler of all time, Bret the Hitman Hart, uh, in a 30-man over-the-top rope battle royal at 50 minutes and 29 seconds. And in the main event of the evening for the WWF World Championship, uh, Shawn Michaels, accompanied by Jose Lothario, defeated the world champion Psycho Sid in 13 minutes and 49 seconds. I may have been pushing it a bit, asking for Jeff to be impartial whilst reading those results. But anyway, that's where we are. Wayne, what do you think of this show? Uh, mixed, in all honesty. Um, coming off the back of it, when I when I actually finished the pay per view, I you know sat there thinking, you know, that probably wasn't a bad rumble altogether. I think we've reviewed some some bad ones uh, on on the show, <laughs> um, but I do have a feeling now that just got flashbacks of, of certain things and I, th- I think as we get further along the review, I, my mark that would have been higher is, is probably getting knocked down a one or two. Jeff? Um, overall, I thought it sucked. Um, I thought the entire show succeeded in solely getting Austin over, which I thought Austin was if you gave a, you know, a highlight of the night, MVP for the night award, it was Steve Austin. Um, but altogether, a lot of the things in this, in this in this paper just did not make sense to me. A lot of it came across as really dumb and telegraphed. And I think you touched upon it earlier. I don't think they have the roster for a lot of what they want to do and, and a lot of things that they want to get over. And this one really showed for me. Um, yeah, I thought it sucked. Yeah, um, I, I feel like if you 
if you look at this show for a far enough away distance, as we, we, we might do, say, come the end of year, I, I feel like you can... You look at the broad strokes and you're like, well, they did a really good job with Austin in the Rumble. And I think came up with a finish that was just about clever enough to achieve what they wanted to achieve without being predictable and setting up next month's pay-per-view. And Shawn Michaels got a superstar reaction in his home state and won the title with a big pop in the main event. And when you look at it like that, um, we could also talk about in a sec of you know, what, what the show looked like. Those were three very big positives. Um, and generally, as I watch the show, I'm like, this show isn't that bad, but I kind of, I got to the end, and I'm like, oh, that was that was it. You know, and the, the Rumble, you know, what, one thing they've done quite well, Rumbles in the last couple of years, certainly the ones we've watched, is that with, with a limited amount of star power, and it is a bit weird, you know, this idea of this 30-man match, despite the fact we've only really got four or five guys really pushing, is a bit of a juxtaposition anyway. Um, but I felt like in previous years, they protected their gaps in those 30 men a lot better than they did this year and the, the, the start of the rumble was death and it was the, the first 20 was pretty bad other than austin um they had a few gimmicks and then they just loaded up the final seven or eight guys vader undertaker bret hart they loaded up their big names mankind right at the end and almost in a way like given what they did, and we'll, also we'll come to this when we get to it, I think given what they did, they almost could have spread them out a bit more. And you could almost just have a focal, focus on maybe, you know, Austin and Vader being the two big names in early. I think Vader has been working ill and or her, as has Shawn Michaels, as has Sid, who was involved in a car accident this month. Uh, it's been a bit of a rough month on the uh, on the roster front. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought, We'll get to them. Some good points, but I get the feeling by the end of the show I'm probably going to be a bit less positive than, than I am now at the end of this review, but we'll see. We start with a really nice video package featuring Shawn Michaels' change in attitude over the last year since becoming champion. Tonight, Shawn Michaels returns a man. We cut to a wide-angle shot of the Alamo Dome, and it looked fantastic. Proper stadium show, this. Vincent Mann, Jim Ross, and Jerry Lawler have the call. Wayne, um, we, we, we've covered... Many a WWF show over the, the over the years. I don't, and you know, and to an extent, it's always going to look the best because it was in front of the biggest crowd. But I don't know that they've been anywhere close to having a show that visually looked this good. No, it's. I think you probably said the last time was was one of the early WrestleManias. Um, in, in one of those settings, they've not been able to to sell a crowd out. Well. Selling a crowd out like that is probably debatable, really, with, uh, with what we read in the news. But uh, um, but having a crowd that that large um, is something that they've uh, that they've not been able to do for a while. And uh, you know, visually, it was fantastic. It was just unfortunate that, in my eyes, the uh, the, the crowd probably killed this pay per view a, a little bit more. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, I think we talk about the one of the reasons, perhaps, why this show will be perceived perhaps a little bit better than it should be. Um, I think visuals, visually, and um, you know, we'll come to the reaction of Shawn Michaels later on. But I think visually, this show, what what they were in front of, lifted, elevated the show a lot more than it had been said if they'd been in front of fifteen thousand people. Would you agree with that? Um, I thought the crowd was just completely dead. I mean, I guess you know they heavily papered it, and I think when you get that, you know, that visual, that huge dome attendance, you're gonna get, you know. They always say, like, the sound escapes and it goes to the top of the dome, so you don't really hear the oohs and the ahs and the pops and the boos. Um, I don't know. I just I, – I, for, for, the, for the attendance they had, it didn't really 
it didn't really strike me as impressive. I mean, it wasn't certainly the same visual as, say, Wembley or, uh, you know, I, I always think the outdoor stadiums look cooler anyways because you have the kind of afternoon matches and then it segs into evening. But, uh, yeah. And of course, like those big, like, helicopter shots or a blimp, if you can get that up there as well, that always helps. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I saw that the the attendance was huge, and I saw, you know, some of the shots they showed of the crowd and how they were all watching the big jumbotrons, but it just, I mean, to me, it just it just kind of fell flat visually. I mean, I, I get the impressiveness of the number, but I don't know if it was that they didn't light the crowds at certain points or they didn't have that blimp, that inner blimp like the WWF has where it kind of goes around and takes pictures and stuff, but it didn't get it over to me that that was a huge attendance or a huge crowd uh, at the time. I mean, I read about it, but... Uh, yeah, you know, I I wasn't terribly impressed. Okay, uh, I think we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. I, I thought, you know, visually, you know, I, I think there's certainly something to be said, and we'll, we'll cover this as we get through these matches. Big crowd did not equal hot crowd. Some of that is just going to be the acoustics of the building, and some of it, as we will see, was just the fact that a lot of these guys weren't over. In particular, I kind of thought the whole point of bringing in the Mexican guys, because we were in Texas, was the idea that they'll draw part of the crowd because people know who they were. Very, very clear that was not the case. And even Terry Funk didn't get a great reaction coming out, in part because I don't think they had any music for him. Um, but Funk's reaction improved. But the the kicker at the end, the, the reason, the the exception that proves the rule, was that the reaction for Sean and Sid was great and probably made that much. Anyway, let's get on with the show. We open up with Goldust with Marlena versus Hunter Hearst Housley for the WWF Intercontinentals title. This starts with a video package of Triple H and Goldust as ever these things do presenting these do a good job at presenting things far better than they actually are. Uh, they did blank out the word queer, which was a bit odd, given that it aired on Raw, but anyway, that's where we are. Uh, that was obviously the, the, the angle from last month that we covered there. Helsley comes out, I believe, with Mr. Hughes. It was Mr. Hughes, that was just me uh, live typing. But yes, Mr. Hughes of, uh, I think when I saw him in ECW, I want to say 18 months ago, something like that, I might be wrong. Anyway, Goldust jumps Hunter in the R-way. I kind of understate how Major League WWF looks in this venue. A 10-punch in the corner by Goldust, which Helsley counters with an atomic drop. I'm not sure the crowd are going to be all over Goldust as a face yet. And apparently one thing that we saw in the in the free-for-all and just general reaction to the crowd was that Goldust was not over as a face in front of this crowd at all. His name was quite heavily booed when, uh, I think it was Doc Hendricks mentioned him in the free-for-all. Hunter shapes for pedigree, but Goldust counters and catapults him over the top. Goldust picks up the ring steps and just dumps them across Hunter's back on the outside. Hunter randomly then just gets up and stumbles onto the steps. Vince McMahon says Jordan Adam, two of the guys involved in all of the Raw Rumble adverts you've seen on Raw in the last couple of months leading up to the show have been thrown out by security. As as Jerry Lawler go, this the, just Jerry Lawler pissed himself laughing, not in a that was funny, just more in a that was the payoff for all this stuff. How bad was that kind of reaction? Hunter sets Goldust up on the guardrail, then takes a run up. Goldust moves and Hunter cracks his knee on it. Goldust follows that with a shot to the knee with the ring steps. The crowd are absolutely dead. Goldust locks in the figure four. Ross notes how much the ref is willing to let go in this one and that the ref will also be refereeing the title match at the end of the show. Helsley attempts to curtsy mid-ring but is struggling with his knee. Hunter grabs the producer's chair. Marlena sits in and goes to swing it but the ref stops him. Nothing says a serious title match quite like an interview between Todd Pettengill and singer Colin Ray about 15 minutes into the match. 
just a split screen. They just cut to Todd Pettengill. Uh, Goldust levels Hunter with a clothesline attempts to get some support up. He gets a lukewarm reaction. Goldust gets to the top. Hunter shoves the ref into the ropes and Goldust gets crotched. Goldust headbutts Hunter to the mat, goes for an elbow drop, but Hunter moves. Hunter grabs the title that Mr. Hughes threw to him. Hunter Hughes distracts the ref, uh, but Marlena distracts Hunter, who kisses her in return. Goldust takes the belt off of the distraction, hits Hunter with it, then goes to pin him, but Hughes pulls Hunter out of the ring. Hunter hits the clothesline and the pedigree, and that will do that. Wayne? Um, first of all, can we address the elephant in the room? Why is Triple? Uh, why is uh, Hunter Selmsley paired up with uh, Mister Hughes? Um, it's a bodyguard, I think. Is the idea? Yeah, I just I don't get that one. I'm just used to him coming out with uh, you know with beautiful ladies um, or on his own on his own. Uh, and unless his tastes have changed over well, the New Year's resolution. Could be yeah, that. Well, exactly. We're, we're in 1997 now, so uh, you know we're, we're we're close to the millennium than you think. So maybe, maybe um, the match. You know, reading that review and 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 the way you started at the at the start, um, I'm probably going to go against what what you're thinking and and maybe what Jeff is as well. But I actually enjoyed this match. Um, I thought it had uh, very good psychology in parts. It was just really, really confusing. And like you just pointed out there, you know, Goldust is, is not going over with the crowd and he certainly won't go over if he's, uh, you know, if he's, if he's making or garnering sympathy for, uh, for, for Helmsley anywhere. You know, I thought Hunter Earl Helmsley was, was playing off as, you know, as, as in a babyface role in, in this match and you know, that's what was making it confusing altogether. But, uh, um, as I said, I, I, I would have liked for it to have been uh, a little bit faster paced, maybe. A bit. The next match that we're going to cover off, it, you know, that was that was you know a bit of a battle, and if you know if we had that with this, but you know the storytelling I thought with working over on the knee was uh, was very well executed. I just didn't understand it because it was happening on Hunter Stones. But add that with with Mister Hughes being uh, who. Not only am I confused by that point, I also I, th- I feel he's as much use as as what Miss Elizabeth is when she's at ringside because uh, neither of them do anything. Um. But yeah, apart from the daft last few minutes that that finished the match, uh, and, the, and 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 as I said, Mister Hughes being added in there, I, I you know I didn't mind the match at all. So, so apart from that big long list of problems, you thought it was fine. <laughs> well, the the match, you know, if the roles were reversed, then then fair enough. The you know the action inside the ring, I didn't mind. It was just it was. It was confusing because it was the other way around in character. I was wondering whether it was, a, 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 was a, not an accident. I was wondering whether Goldust started getting boomed. Just, they just went, OK, let's go with it rather than try and fight it. I agree. Maybe. I think the the end result was a bit puzzling because they kind of, you know, I'm not saying they did call one on the fly, but the, the end result was like, OK, Goldust working as a heel... Helmsley winning with like a, a, a double into like you know Jeff the, the, who am I supposed to like in this few because well not really a few but the, the whole thing was a bit confusing what do you think oh, I kind of hated this match to be honest um, but I'll, I'll preface that by saying they both worked really hard and it technically felt like they should have pretty good chemistry down the line uh, I just thought it was really horribly booked from a psychology standpoint um, I want to begin by really saying about the, the, the real 
dumb absence of, of, of rule enforcement. Um, it felt like an ECW show. I'm going to knock ECW every chance I get. Um, but it, it, well, it, we're going to get you on one of these ECW shows, Jeff, just, yeah. uh, just, just for my own amusement. Oh, yeah, for my amusement, too. I mean, it'd be great. Uh, all those great five-star Sandman matches. Uh, but uh, for me, the, the rule enforcement really killed the match, even though JR was trying to save the psychology. Like, I, I understand if they tried to call on the fly because Goldust wasn't over in Texas, even though his dad is one of the biggest stars in wrestling history from Texas. Um, but, I mean, right out the gate, the babyface, you know, is getting away with several fouls that should have been DQs. Uh, Helmsley's a good heel, and he bumps really well. But it felt like a heel versus heel match. And, uh, you know, you obviously get the homophobic responses from the crowd, which doesn't help the baby phase in the situation. Um, but then you have, you know, Helmsley working the baby face in peril. And I don't think the commentary did a good enough job of putting Goldust over as a baby face to kind of protect that, to kind of buffer it for the pay per view audience. Um, again, the psychology, I mean, Helmsley is really good, but he still tried to work in his knee drop spot, even though he had his knee worked over the whole time, thought that was kind of weird. Uh, camera was out of position. I didn't really catch the cigar spot that led to the finish where Mr. Hughes got a big cigar in the eye. Um, yeah, there's too much stuff that happened in short order. It just, it felt like the heel overcame the adversity, which, which is backwards against all odds. He eats a belt shot. He takes, you know, his knees destroyed, yet he comes back, gets the pedigree. Uh, you know, I think if the roles were reversed, if they want Hunter to go babyface, maybe that's something. But the match as it stood, I thought, uh, technically was good. Everything else just was trash. Yeah, I get the feeling if you put the, the giant lump of a bodyguard with the, with, with the heel, you're not planning on turning him face anytime soon. Um, there are ways around that, but I, I don't think they're going to play Mr. Hughes into an angle quite that important. Uh, yeah, this this match struggled for a number of different reasons. I don't like, you know, we talk of, you know, this the, the the infamous you know wrestling vacuum. I often talk about. I don't actually think this was a bad match. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said for. I don't mind a wrestling match breaking down, and I don't mind a referee letting things go. We've seen those in kind of big main events before where, you know, Bret Hart will, will go to the outside and start brawling with someone and that kind of thing with guardrails and, and weapon shots and things like that. I don't mind that, but it's like, do it in a match that matters, not one that doesn't. Like, don't, you know, don't have these two break a load of rules just because you need something interesting to do. Um, the face heel dynamic didn't work. Gold dust, I don't know whether that was the plan. Like, you kind of hope it wasn't. You kind of it wasn't Goldust's first month of the babyface. Yeah, let me let me work the bulk of the match on the upper hand. That didn't make sense. I'll I'll work over the knee with weapon shots and and submission moves. Um, so that didn't work. You've got Hunter who's having his knee worked over for most of the match, and then just stops selling like a Rey Mysterio style. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. Uh, just stops selling, hits his finisher, doesn't even, you know, his finisher, which involves sticking his opponent's head between his legs and then driving them knee first into the mat. Like, you know, do that. At least roll around a bit, you know, that kind of thing and sell the injury afterwards. I don't think he did a good enough job of that. Um, and then the finish was a bit of a mess and we're going to kind of come to this throughout the show. You know, you talk about... a. Uh, it wasn't really a clean finish on this entire show. I don't think we're per perhaps the exception of the uh, of the six man. Um, not the match to do it. And I, I kind of, Jeff, like if you're going to do the, the the heel face turn with Gold Dust, you can't just do it. Like you've got to, you know, there needs to be more to it than ah, oh, you know, he's flat, he's drowning as a heel. Let's just turn him face and hope for the best. With particularly with the character like this, Jeff, it just doesn't work. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a real social exception for, uh, you know, he has to renounce, you know, any of that androgynous character that he has with Lawler on the Raw prior, and they bring out Marlena, and he's his, you know, love interest, but he's still, you know, costumed up. He looks like a, an Academy Award. I, I think they, I mean, I think generally speaking, babyfaces have to have sympathy, have to be believable as kind of tough guys, and they have to look the part, so guys want to be them, and I I don't know if that's getting gold dust over as a babyface. Um, maybe want to tweak some of the things that make him a really good attraction. Uh, you know, different face paint colors, just something. I just at this point, I don't think that's a babyface. Wayne, is the are the gods telling us that gold dust just might be shot face or heel? I think so. If they if they wanted to uh, turn him face, they should have had Marlene turn on him and join. Hunter Stones instead of Mr. Hughes, then that would have been problem solved. I don't know if it would have been problem solved. It probably would have been far better than what they did. Um, but yeah, you, you, you can't, you know, and in many ways, Goldust is a, is, is a complex character. They haven't really pushed that idea all that much. But you can't just do it and then go, oh, all right, you know, now he's a face, you know, let's see, see what happens there. And particularly when you've got a healing Hunter has healthy that, you know, I think Dave Meltzer said this month, they're basically pushing on politics and potential, not for where he is. It's like, you know, we've had this discussion a couple of times before. Some po- You know, at some point he's going to have to back up this push. I don't think he's doing that yet. Um, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help that Dustin, you know, Dustin Rhodes hasn't been a, a, a good wrestler since he was Dustin Rhodes. Oh, that doesn't help. But equally, like, you know, th- this is this is the kind of thing, that this, this match didn't help either guy. Because it was a bad pairing. Anyway, we'll move on. We get an interview with Bret Hart. He says he's always been a marked man. Bret does seem more confident as a heel. Oh, sorry, acting like a heel, talking in those kind of mannerisms. Mankind says he sees the Rumble as a chance to hurt a lot of people that he doesn't like. The Nation of Domination come out to no reaction at all. We get another really nice video package documenting the feud between Farouk and Ahmed Johnson. I do like these. And next up, it's Ahmed Johnson versus Farouk. We start out hot with Ahmed attacking Farouk. The crowd are more into this one already. Johnson lays in a couple of thigh, thigh kicks to Farouk, or thick kicks, sorry, to Farouk's midriff. Farouk tries to attack Johnson with a belt, but Ahmed takes him off his feet. Johnson whips Farouk with the belt about ten times till the ref stops him. We spill to the outside and Farouk hits Ahmed with a chair. Back in the ring, Farouk locks in a camel clutch. The crowd have flattened out. Farouk mouths off at a fan, but Johnson picks up Farouk in an electric chair and drops him, which is a real nice spot. Farouk comes off the top, but Ahmed hits the power slam. Ahmed fires him off the ropes, but he just jumps into a spine buster by Farouk. Farouk mouths off at the fans again, but Ahmed gets up and it's a spine buster of his own. Ahmed fights off Crush, then members of the nation get involved, and we go for a DQ. In my notes, I've just got, ugh, that was disappointing. Post-match goes on for a while. Ahmed sets up one of the nation on the steps next to the, I think it's the French announcer's table. There are three of them. Hits the power of a plunge through the table. That really nice. Table collapses. What gets kind of submerged in monitors. Uh, Jeff, what do you think of this? Um, I really like parts of the Nation of Domination in Farouk's presentation. I think I think he's got a huge, mean boxing entourage that looks kind of like Tyson's, and, and that's kind of cool. Um, but again, it's in contrast with some really awful tone issues with words that Pettengill says in the pre the package that like the the, the build up package was was quite nicely done. But then there are these really awful tone issues with like the lone soldier in a turf war and. 
And with this being WWF, um, you know, there's a lot of bad taste written all over this. There's kind of the O.J. Simpson deal with Clarence Mason, Clarence Mason, and allusions to the Nation of Islam. So there's this race exploitation thing that I find kind of gross. Uh, it's another match that I found there was no rule enforcement in, yet it wasn't a no DQ. So you're, again, contradicting the core concept of what pro wrestling is. Uh, neither of these guys are workers, per se. Um, I feel like Simmons, I'm going to call Ron Simmons. I love Ron Simmons. Uh, Farouk, Ron Simmons needs a good baby face to bump and sell for him. And I feel like Ahmed Johnson needs a good heel to take his scary power moves. And neither really does it except for that uh, kind of electric chair drop spot that, as you mentioned, uh, looked pretty cool. Uh, the whole angle kind of feels like a cut-rate mid-card ECW angle. Again, I'm going to just crap on ECW. But it just it felt like something that, like, Public Enemy and the Gangsters would be in before, you know, the main event. And it just feels exploitative. Uh, you know, the Ahmed Johnson table spot was cool, although I do have to note that he always seems to be a second away from just killing his opponent legitimately. It terrifies me to watch. So uh, the match was the match. Uh, feels like JR's, you know, kind of Haas fight that he always likes to watch. But... Uh, I don't know, it just it kind of just doesn't really seem tasteful the way they're pushing it as like a turf war. Eh, not my not my cup of tea. Jeff, what has ECW done to you? Uh, you know, it, it kind of killed the aura of the wrestling business by being, you know, the pornography of wrestling, if you will, by showing you everything and then making them come back and do more. Uh, you know, sometimes one chair shot will do, not 50, and, you know, just trying to treat it like it's a... I don't know. I just think the psychology just undermines everything that should go into a good pro wrestling promotion, and they consistently and without fail undermine it and uh, try to raise the bar, but by doing so, it becomes impossible to talk. Pivots into another question. Why not bring you in in a minute? Jeff, uh, in a list of Goldust, Mark Merrow, uh, Ron Simmons, uh, Farouk even, and Flash Funk... Are we looking at four guys that, you know, uh, um, you know, we'll talk about Steve Austin who might be on the other end of this scale, but four guys that WF have brought in from WCW and made worse? Yeah, I think the I think the jury's still out on Farouk because he, he does have a presence to him. And again, if you put him with a good baby face, uh, he should be able to have a good program. Uh, I think Mark Marrow, yeah, definitely. Um, his match quality, again, he's put in there with... You know, kind of mid-card guys, uh, not really great. I think Flash Funk has tons of potential, as we've seen over the last several years. So I wouldn't sell out on him completely yet. But, yeah, I mean, they haven't really done much with any of those guys to really make you feel like WCW dropped the ball with them because um, WWF isn't knocking out of the park either. Why are you talking this match? Yeah, I was. Um, I did the show last year, and Emma Johnson had a match with um, Double J. And I'll be honest with you, I could probably read the same notes about Ahmed Johnson back then, and it would still be relevant now. The guy is just so green, it's unbelievable. Um, I don't really see any massive signs of improvement from him within 12 months. Yes, granted, he's been injured for, for a small part of it, but you know the basics, again, is the things that you should be doing in, in the ring. You know, One, one spot, he threw Farouk in, into the turnbuckle, into the corner, and then just ran into him and um, you know instead of put, running and doing a power move or something like that he just ran over to him and just barged into him and just you know basics like that is, is is the things that he needs to get a grip of because he's, he's going to seriously injure someone uh, if he's not already done it um, or you know 
injure himself as well. You know, that electric chair shot, you know, it was a good spot. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that one. Um, but things like, you know, throwing a member of PG-13 out of the ring, you know, he, he just threw him into the ropes. He, he didn't even clear it. And, you know, this was a gorilla press that a gorilla press Sammy was doing. Um, the... The Pearl River Plunge, you know, that that was a good spot, but throughout I was just terrified that he was going to drop this guy on, on the steps or um, off, n- not hitting the table or anything like that. And all this together is, in my eyes, is just a massive shame because the, the guy is over. You know, don't take that away from him. Armour Johnson is over with a WWF audience. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't really with this one, but I think as a broad stroke, you're generally right. Say it again, sorry, Mr. I don't. I don't think he was particularly over with this audience. Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not this audience, but you know, leading up to to the rumble, and and I'd probably say he was. He, you know, he, he you know he got a good or semi reaction to when he come out at the start of the rumble when he was chasing Ahmed Johnson out of, when he come down with. Uh, with that two by four, if uh, if that's what you can call it, it's, um, you know, when he come chasing him with the uh, with, with the plank. But yeah, as, you know, as I was saying, whether it was this crowd or, or what, you know, the, the guy is is over, and you know, that's probably why WWF have uh, you know been pushing hard on him, and uh, um, you know, not just on this pay per view, but leading up to it as well. You know, I'd, I'd, I feel it's it's a massive shame on uh, on Farouk because uh, you know this this is a guy that. He was given a you know a dead end gimmick to start off with coming in as gladiator, but I think it's, it's something. There's going to be you know off moments with uh, with the way that his character's being portrayed um, um, at the moment. The things obviously, like you said, you know things like Todd Pettengill was saying when he was uh, when it leading up to it and things like that. There's, there's going to be some of those which are going to be tongue in, well, not tongue in cheek, but you know it's uh, a, a, you know quite awkward. Can you actually get away with things like that? But I, th- I th- you know, I think they've reinvented this character from from the Gladiator gimmick, and I, th- I think it's something that we could probably run with, and I'm excited to see. But being lumbered with uh, with Armour Johnson at the moment isn't going to do him any favors. Yeah, I, I don't know why Armour Johnson didn't just win this, like on a show with hardly any clean finishes. I, I, I would have banked on this more than most. Um, as in, you know, I know they're they're quite happy with this or they're quite fond of this new nation domination gimmick you know expanded at the end of the month etc etc um but for me like i'd have just you know i kind of feel like to a point that the the nation domination gimmick should be able to shield farouk i feel like ahmed could have plowed through him here beating him cleanly and then farouk with all of his you know all the guys flanking him can rebuild their heat be that with a continuation of this feud or indeed going in another direction and I felt like Ahmed would have done better off just winning the match outright that was kind of why I got the end of my, I was like oh that was that was the best you had like you know on this kind of show um, I thought the action was okay yeah the, you know we've we discussed before about Ahmed Johnson's you know out of control tendencies I'd agree with Wayne I don't think he's getting a lot better um, you know I, you know, there's there's a safety thing to that to a point but I, th- I think to a part it does make him enjoyable to watch and that he's a bit out of control but you know I ain't got to work with him I suppose there's that but yeah just flat booking um, and again not the, for the first or the last time tonight a crowd that just didn't really care um, anyway there is that uh, Wayne quickly should, should I have just won this clearly 
I think it says a lot about Farouk that they want to still build him and, and the nation up as, as strong guys, and that's probably why they didn't want to give Ahmed the clean win in that sense. Jeff? Nope, he should not have gone over clean. I think uh, you got to build up your heel, and if anything, I think you put Ahmed in there with some with you know PG thirteen and have him squash them both, and then he's got to you know you got to you got you got to you know make the battle worth fighting for before you get to the end. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. So um, I'd have preferred they not have this match at all, and, and Ahmed and Farouk just fight all through the Rumble. Um, because this is kind of the build-up to WrestleMania. So if you want to do your blow-off, that's where you do it between the two of them. I don't think you need anything clean at the Rumble. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I could go with that. Um, just, I just don't think I would have done what necessarily what I'd have done here. Maybe you do Ahmed and Crush in this spot. That's the clean victory. And then you do the Ahmed and Farouk stuff in the Rumble match itself. Um, although God knows they did Ahmed and Crush on Raw, so I suppose there's that. Uh, we see Terry Funk uh, in, in a promo backstage. That was also brief. He says this is his state and he was born to win, or born, just born to rumble, not even born to win it. Uh, man, how that promo could have done with being about 10 times as long. An interview with Farouk backstage, Frank by the Nation. He calls Ahmed Johnson an Uncle Tom. Next up, it's Vader versus The Undertaker. Another match, the first of all three, that starts uh, before the bell. We start with an exchange of strikes, which look really nice. Vader knocks Undertaker down, Taker sits straight back up, we get that spot again Vader knocks, uh, steps out of the ring and mouths off at the ref, Taker takes the opportunity to hit a double axe handle off of the apron Vader ducks down as he fires Taker off the ropes and Taker hits a lovely almost floaty leg drop across Vader's neck, that looked really nice Vader hits a low blow on Taker the crowd again are really flat why is Todd Pettengill doing match interviews with fans? I've got no idea. Vader beating the fuck out of Taker and Pettengill is finding out how a young girl saved up money by babysitting so she could be here. Lawler quite rightly points out what a complete farce that whole thing is. Vader goes to the second rope, hits a splash onto Taker. Taker rallies with a series of fast, low punches and a side suplex. Undertaker goes for a standing elbow, but Vader moves. Vader goes for the second rope again, goes for another splash, but Taker counters it into a power slam. Vader hits the power bomb, which Vince calls a Vader bomb. I technically he's not wrong. It's a Vader bomb, just not the one. Taker kicks out at two. Taker comes off the top with a punch. Out walks Paul Bearer. Taker hits in the circumstances. A very nice choke slam. Paul Bearer has the urn. Taker drops to the outside, hits a big punch on big punch on Bearer. Taker rolls Bearer into the ring. We end up with all three men on the outside. We return to the French announcer's position. The table is magically respawned. Taker sets up the ring steps, runs at them and vaults off of them. Sabu, he's not, but he does land on the guardrail after Bearer drags Vader out of harm's way. Bearer gets a shot in on the Undertaker, and then in my notes I've just got, fuck, Vader hits the Vader bomb and wins. Jesus. Vader and Barrett embrace as they leave the match. That wasn't a clean win, but it wasn't <coughs> far off. Or at least it didn't feel like it. Anyway, Taker comes through after the match. I'm not sure he realises what happens. He chokeslams the ref and he looked really hard. There's a BWO shirt in the front row. Taker hits the ring post with a chair for what that's worth. He then mouths something at Vince. All I caught at the end was, and his name is The Undertaker. And that will do that. Why are your thoughts on all that? Well, before I get into the match, first things first, you've got Two absolute greats in my eyes. You've got Vader, who's, who's you know well renowned, uh, you know across the, across the over in Japan, and obviously the work that he's done in WCW, uh, and then you've got Undertaker, who's uh, you know who's, who's 
been a stalwart over the last five five plus years. Um, and then they put him, they put them both in a throwaway match with with no build. I mean, I'd, I'd, as I said, I've, I've watched the Raws leading up to this, and I've not really seen any build at all. If you know, if it was before um, you know the start of the month or anything like that, I'm not sure. It just seems like they've just had an open spot on the Rumble and, and just put these two together. I just doesn't make sense at all. You, as I said, putting these guys in a throwaway match is not what you do on a pay per view. You build something up. I think this could be a very good, uh, um, or could be built up as a very good uh, mania match between between the two. Now, the the match itself, whether that ruined it, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, um, I just didn't enjoy this match at all. Maybe because it was, you know, went in the same way as the previous two matches. You know, have a brawl debatable uh, disqualification spots and then a finish via interference. It just seems that we're following on the same trend tonight. Um, but it just felt slow and plodding at the same time as well. Um, and then, you know, finish out of nowhere. Yeah, didn't really get much enjoyment out of this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really agreed with Wayne on the lack of the build-up. I think this is a WrestleMania match. Um, on paper, this should be a really fun, excellent brawling-style match. Uh, Vader's made his career out of doing really great violent stuff with guys like Taker, um, you know, whether it's Bam Bam or whether it's, you know, Stan Hansen in Japan or the stuff he did with Cactus in, in WCW. He's had some wild matches. Flip side, Taker's never really had a good working monster heel to, to work off of um, like Vader. So you have, you know, Giant Gonzalez or Kamala or Bundy or, or even Yoko. And I, I'm not going to count, you know, Mankind in that, but he, this should have been, uh, you know, Undertaker and Vader having a great, as JR would call it, you know, Haas fight. Uh, that said, Vader was, when he was walking out, he didn't look like, he didn't have that aura, he didn't carry himself like Vader of old. He looked deflated, he looked more fat and flabby, less solid, less barrel chested. You know, he's not a, a muscle body guy with abs, but, he didn't look the same. He, he working wise, you know, maybe even you know, you Bobby had alluded earlier that he uh, could be injured, but he he was much less agile. Felt like he lost a step. Didn't really look like the guy we've seen over the past, you know, about five years ago. Um, age and injuries and his weight, uh, you know, they probably aren't on his side, especially when he's going up to do the the Vader salt and the Vader bomb on on those knees. That's a lot of pressure and a lot of a lot of stuff to carry. Um, but he doesn't seem like the same level of star in WWF to begin with. Uh, the match itself was just the match. The one thing that really stuck in my craw was, you know, the rather abrupt ending. Um, they didn't really tease the Vader bomb, bomb off the top ropes too much, so the fans didn't really get cued into that being the finish, and I don't think there was as much excitement or drama as there should be in a match of this uh, potential on paper caliber, and it all kind of just fell flat. Uh, I thought Lawler was pretty funny during this match as well on commentary, um, JR was good on commentary. I thought the, the babysitter thing, much like the earlier thing with the country music star, it just totally seems out of place and just pulls you out of the match. It feels completely stupid. And then the commentary kind of buries it. it just, it just seems totally pointless. Uh, if this is a build to something more like mania, I think it'd be great. Hopefully Vader's healthy. Um, Paul Bearer just kind of was there. I, again, it, it was disappointed. I was very disappointed in this match. Yeah. Um, this, you know, the, you feel like this could be a WrestleMania main event if they built it right. I know they've got other stars they'd rather push. Sure, Michael's name of the guy, Bret Hart to a point, Steve Austin to a point. But you feel like this could be a, a big WrestleMania number two match, even if you had a bigger plan for the main event. 
and it was a bit thrown out there. It's almost like they just wanted a match in the middle between two named guys. It really felt as much going in. Okay, it felt like they, you know, with, you know, it does kind of arbitrarily now feel like they're just going to pair Bearer with whoever Undertaker's feuding with. I don't know if that's ideal. I think that could get old quite quickly. Um, but they did come out of it, and now we've got Vader with Bearer, which feels odd. Um, but I suppose there's a, again the thought that well that they they don't want Vader to talk, which well there's 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 some argument for that, some argument not. Jim Cornette's not on the road anymore, so you don't have him with him, and you have to have someone with him. Bear as an option for this feud, I suppose that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know whether you know maybe Vader's starting to lose it. Maybe um, maybe it's also just a lack of motivation, and maybe it was just being in a you know, a, a 10, 12 minute, however long, long this match was, with a with a screwy finish, and the, the the finish at the end kind of felt flat, almost because it was so sudden. Like, I was caught a bit off guard by it. Like, you know, they were brawling outside of the ring, um, and Vader was selling, Undertaker hit the guardrail, and the Bear hits him, and Bear rolls him into the ring, or he gets rolled into the ring by Vader, one or the other, and Vader just does a Vader bomb and wins. It's not like Vader bomb's been a brilliantly protected move. People have kicked out of it. Um, and Undertaker, you would have thought a guy would have been able to... You know, let's be honest, it's not like... You know, he hit a running jump off of the, the, the steps onto the guardrail, then got hit by a however old bearer is, 50, a 50-odd-year-old man with an urn, um, and that was it. And then a Vader bomb. It wasn't like this... It was the kind of beatdown you kind of would have expected Undertaker to get out of, but that's where we are. But yeah, I, I completely agree. The match was okay. I feel like these two could do a lot, lot better um, if it was built properly if it was built with you know and part of the problem is they've not presented Vader brilliant particularly all year um Undertaker's been doing okay but we'll come to that more in a bit the, this this program hasn't finished yet I think that's well hasn't really started but now it has started I think that's uh more the point uh we get more comments from Steve Austin and we see British Bulldog uh talking his chances up as he enters uh the building for earlier on and next up, it's our Mexican six-man tag, Hector Garza, Pera Aguayo, and Kinect versus Jerry Estrada, Heavy Metal, and Fuerza Guerrero. Vincent Mann literally says, only in the World Wrestling Federation can you see a spectacle like this, using six guys that we've never seen on WWF TV before. Where is Mike Tanay when you need him? Ends my, uh, my pre-match notes. Vincent Mann, not knowing who's who, is going to make this one a struggle. And he you know, he improved a bit, but it was not great. So I, I just about worked out who was what, but this was a bit of a struggle putting notes together. Pero Aguayo is on the receiving end of some strikes by Jerry Estrada. He takes him down. The crowd are surprisingly flat. Again, that was kind of my takeaway. I figured the whole point of this match was well, bringing a lot of people that know what Mexican wrestling is on about, and they recognise these guys. They didn't. Uh, Guerrero whips Kinect into the corner. Kinect comes off the second rope with a crossbody. Guerrero almost looks like he fell off the top rope going for a somersault. That missed. Kinect hits a crossbody, and we're back to Gaza and Heavy Metal. Mal hits a spinning heel kick and barely controlled handspring back elbow. The action picks up pace a little as Garza hits a lovely arm drag from the top rope. Connect hits a trio of drop kicks on Estrada. Guerrero hits a series of quicks, uh, kicks on Aguayo. Aguayo responds by dropping him. Guerrero goes for a drop kick, but Aguayo moves and hits a flying, uh, goes flying through the middle ropes. Garza puts in an SDF on Heavy Metal, who's been in the ring by the sounds of this match for quite a while. The match breaks down with four guys involved. Garza hits a corkscrew something onto Estrada on the floor. 
Aguayo hits a double stomp on heavy metal, misses it badly, goes back and hits a standing elbow, and that was enough for the win. Well, I remember, apparently the big screens that were everywhere in the arena, because obviously you have 60,000 fans, a lot of them are going to be sat quite far away. Big screens apparently weren't on for this match, which probably didn't didn't help the uh, the reaction. Jeff, what do you think of this? I mean, I, I know the logic behind this match, but you kind of watched it and went, what the hell was the point? Yeah, it reminds me of those uh, slambery matches that WCW would hold where they would have, you know, some really, really old guys in matches when they probably shouldn't be there. Um, this match, I mean, I think my suggestion to you, Bob, back when we heard that they were doing the Alamo Dome was, I said, bring in a bunch of Lucha legends, bring in the Funks, bring in Kevin Von Erich, and try to, you know, pop the local market, especially, you know, bolster the attendance of, of the Mexican population in San Antonio and the surrounding areas. I'd be curious to hear how they actually marketed uh, to the local mar- markets that actually said, like, Mill Masquerades and, and Paraguayo and Canac are going to be here. Um, you know, the weird thing about this match that really stuck out to me, I think... You know, it's a tale of two different matches in a lot of ways because, you know, Aguayo, Kanek, and, and Guerrera are pretty old. And, you know, while Kanek and Pero are, are Mexican legends, uh, very much so, they aren't able to do the massive Lucha High Spot Fest that could have got over with this crowd. And I think it hurt it. Um, there was a couple matches on the prelims with a lot of flyers. I think it would have been beneficial to all involved if they'd have had like an old timers match maybe as a dark match just for the local audience with Mill and all those guys, and then had the big flying cruisers uh, do their stuff. And if the big screens were on, I think that would have gotten over, you know, greatly. Um, My main note, aside from it being sloppy and having an awful finish, was Hector Garza is money in the bank. I would sign him up right now, and I think that guy has limitless potential. He's Shawn Michaels without the attitude. Fine. I was kind of hoping that it, you know it was going to be a nice change of pace and, and style, but like Jeff was saying there, you know it just felt really, really sloppy in places. Now I don't know whether it was because they're used to uh, a smaller ring, maybe, um, because there's some of the spots that they were doing, and you know there was there were, there were mistiming and, and, and misplacing some of the spots they were doing when they were doing the jumps, etc. And I could only put that down so that they're, that they're used to a smaller ring, um, you know. That probably had, uh, you know, hindered it a little bit as well. Like Jeff just said, though, I think he hit the nail on the head. You know, if you had the uh, the older guys uh, in in this uh, in this match, in a match on their own, and then the younger guys, you know, your geysers, your heavy metal, um, and, and people like that, that were, you know, I didn't I didn't mind. Uh, I think it was heavy metal and guys. You know, apologies, I'm, I can't keep up with the names myself because I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know these guys and. The fact that Vince McMahon was confusing me when he was doing the uh, doing the um, commentary anyway, when he just kept you know saying the incorrect names, you know, I couldn't keep up. But I think it was heavy metal and, and guys having um, was going at it themselves. I thought you know this this was actually quite enjoyable. Some of the spots they were doing was uh, was quite good, um, and I think the crowd again you know killed it. It was just absolutely dead. I didn't realise that the screens were uh, were supposedly off. That probably added to it, but uh, but no, I, di- I didn't enjoy this either. Yeah, I, I I think the screens didn't help, but I don't know that it was the difference between this match being you know gangbusters over and it being what it was. Um, God, you realise how good Mike Tanay is when he's not calling this kind of match, don't you? Really, I mean, you, you know, Jim Ross knew bits, Vince McMahon 
you know, was contradicting himself at times, getting people wrong on more than one occasion. Um, and Tanae would have spent the first five minutes of the match telling you who the guys were, telling you a bit about the backgrounds, telling you a bit about what this match meant and, and some of their history in the local area. I don't know, that's not brilliant. But it's very, very useful, um, and yeah, it just felt like a, a it felt like a filler match. The action wasn't that good. Let's be honest about that. It was sloppy at times. It, you know, it's the these these six man trios matches. I think work really well when there's a bit more fluidity to them, and to a point where they're in front of an audience that 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 knows a bit of the background, and a bit of the story. This just felt rushed in places. It you know. It, it kind of for a while it felt like they were just pairing off two against two. There were simultaneous tags for about the first five minutes, which didn't really help because it felt a bit too coordinated, if you like. It unfurled a bit later on, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like there was a good intentions behind this kind of match, but it didn't work. And it was actually like just by the end of it, it was just a bad match. Yeah, I think a lot of that blame goes to Pero Aguayo Sr. I mean, that double foot stop that he botched, and then just, like, the the lamest elbow just for the finish. Um, yeah, no, it was bad. I mean, I think I, I think there were kernels of good spots. I think, you know, the, the stuff with Hector Garza really exposes him to the WWF audience. I mean, I'm really high on Hector Garza, so I, I, I'd like to see more out of him. But, yeah, I mean... It just it fell it died a hundred deaths. You can't you can't mention the uh, the double foot stomp and elbow from Aguirre and not mention his uh, attempt to dive through the ropes. Ugh, that was awful. <laughs> Howard Fingal announces the attendance of sixty thousand four hundred and seventy-seven. I've got to feel they actually did themselves out about fifty odd people. I think the uh, the, the full revised presented attendance was actually sixty-five to five or something like that. Well, it's worth. Next up, it's the Royal Rumble. Entrance number one, Crush. Bit of a flat start. Number two is Ahmed Johnson. Well, I guess that makes sense at least. Crush starts out on top. Ahmed fires up and back out. Number three is Razor Ramon, who has no music because it says there's an issue with the truck. I kind of wonder whether you know that was a. Pretty good representation of what they feel about Razor Ramon right now. Uh, Johnson basically throws him straight out. Out comes Farouk. Ahmed eliminates himself and chases him over. Uh, eliminates himself and chases him up the aisleway. Number four, Phineas I. Godwin. You can you wonder why I say it was a bit flat early doors. Number five is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Not the biggest reaction for him. Uh, he's, at least his uh, his music was working. Uh, Phineas runs him over with a clothesline. Crush tries to set uh, set up Austin to hit Phineas from the second row, but Phineas moves and Crush eats it. Phineas throws Crush over. Austin hits a stunner on Phineas, then throws him over the top. It's just Austin in the ring. Number six is Bart Gunn. We get a quick exchange and Austin just chucks him over. Austin does some press-ups which pumps up the crowd and then he sits on the turnbuckle. Number seven is Jake Roberts. Roberts appearing in his sixth Raw Rumble, which apparently is a record. Roberts throws the snake in, goes after Austin and the crowd vie for a DDT. The snake gets removed and Jake is on top as we get to number eight. Number eight is the British Bulldog. Jake gets eliminated during, during Bulldog's entrance, which isn't ideal. It's not even the last time it happens tonight. Uh, Bulldog hits a power slam. Uh, as we do here, we'll, we'll break the rumble into um, chunks, really. Why are you talking so far? Um, a bit slow. I think Steve Austin's doing all right, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm not really sold on this rumble so far. Jeff? 
Yeah, Austin was awesome in this. I just kind of wish you had bigger names for him to eliminate. Uh, you know, every Royal Rumble, when I hear the Godwins music hit, it's just this big, you know, gas of air leaving my body. I just, I just, I've never been like, oh, great, the Godwins are now out. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and when Bart Gunn is botching a famouser, like, it just, it, it just doesn't. It doesn't seem as badass as, as like, and I'm obviously going to be comparing this to the best Royal Rumble ever, but when Flair kind of ran the table and, and wrecked shop at the Rumble, he was doing it with legitimate bona fide guys, and here's Austin doing it, and he, and the push-ups and looking at, you know, his, his stopwatch type stuff, it was great, except he was doing it to guys who were basically jobbers, and it kind of has less resonance because of that, but, uh, you know. Yeah, um, you know, it's just it is what it is. As, as I said at the top, I I don't think they front loaded this as much as they perhaps should. Uh, it suffered a little bit as a result, but you know, you insist on a rumble, a, a match with thirty guys in it, and you don't have thirty guys that are any good. You're going to have some pockets. I know. Number nine is pair Roth. Roth goes after Bulldog, and Austin sells it. Austin stops selling, maybe playing possum, and he joins Bulldog in a two-on-one attack. That changes into a two-on-one with Bulldog and Pierre Roth on Austin. At number 10 is the Sultan, and at number 11 is Mil Mascaris, wearing perhaps the shiniest trunks I have ever seen. Ross also says he's been in the ring for three decades, which I guess makes him the favourite for this match. Entrant number 12 is Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Bulldog eliminates the Sultan, Austin throws Hunter over, but he holds on. Number 13 is Owen Hart. Owen goes straight after Austin. Bulldog defends Owen. Bulldog attempts to eliminate Austin, but Owen, Owen chucks over Bulldog. Owen tries to claim he was attempting to help eliminate Austin, but replays show he clearly wasn't. Entrant number 14 is Goldust. We've got Owen, Mascaris, Roth, Austin, Hunter and Goldust in at the moment. Number 15 is Cibernetico. Mascaris tries to pull his mask off. Number 16 is Wildman Mark Merrow. Seaman Estico and Pierre Roth both get eliminated. Mascaris climbs to the top and throws himself onto Roth, eliminating himself. I assume that was planned. I got in my notes as the announcers tried to imply that a guy that is very well versed in battle royals down in Mexico wouldn't know that was that was the rule. Hunter gets eliminated by Goldust and we're down to Goldust, Merrow, Austin and Owen. Jeff? Uh, yeah, that's kind of just classic Mill Mascaris, not wanting to make himself look bad or put anybody over or do a job or even give any inch of leeway. Uh, it showed when Sultan tried to bump him and Mascaris didn't go for the bump. So naturally, the only way an egotist like that will eliminate himself, is elim- will be eliminated, will be eliminate himself. Um, you know, you always hear stuff from Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes about how difficult Mill Mascaris was. I think you kind of get that out here, and uh, probably which you know would have been more beneficial to have him in that match with Pero Aguayo and guys who he works with more often, who's probably a little more familiar with and comfortable with. Uh, you know, the one note I had about the, the Rumble up to this point, which I felt was really odd with with Austin kind of running the table and, and really being the showcase, was they didn't book a babyface for a longer run in this match. And I know it was Austin's showcase, but there were a lot of times when it was just all these heels or underneath guys that had no chance and weren't over. And I felt like the fans in attendance and on pay-per-view didn't have anybody to get behind. Um, you know, I'm not saying you have to put Flash Funk or Rocky Maivia in at number two and have them go coast to coast, but I think you need some hope spots of some baby faces to do some cool stuff to kind of just make it not just feel so muddled. Um, 
And I think that kind of just speaks to WWF needing better workers, you know, overall. Yeah. Um, you, you say about having a bigger baby face presence. The, I guess the next question is who? Um, you know, it's not like they were, it's not like they were turning down that many options. I mean, the, the one guy perhaps that stood out and, and we perhaps, you know, it, it'll feature again in a bit, but what we talk about Farouk and Ahmed Johnson, that program they were building. Farouk is going to come out in a minute, but it's, Jeff, I kind of found it strange that they did that angle so quickly at the start and then so quickly coming up that you could have built around Johnson for a while, build it, you know, you talk about a guy that they, they had lose earlier on or well, win by DQ. You could have built up Johnson for a while just by cleaning house, him and Austin, that kind of thing. Those are the two guys you could have had around and then done something quite similar with Farouk because it was that like, Johnson might, would he have been the best option for that trip? I think Brett would have been the best option because, I mean, you have this heated rivalry and you just I, – I, I mean, if Brett and Austin were one and two, I think that would have been my dream booking. Um, or maybe Owen and Brett and then Austin's three and then Davies four. I just think, you know, highlighting Brett Hart is always the way to go. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think Ahmed Johnson at this point is kind of in the old Ultimate Warrior spot where, you know – He's over, he's got some moves, and, you know, the the match probably ends as soon as his music stops. But, uh, yeah, I would have highlighted maybe him or, you know, I, I, I like Flash Funk. I think his moveset's pretty cool. I know he's not over, so I guess he's probably not an option. And then, again, like it's got a guy like Mark Marrow, like maybe you put him and have him run for a bit. But, yeah, he's not over. So, yeah, I think Ahmed's the guy. <laughs> Why any thoughts on all this? Could you give it to Terry Funk? Could he have carried it for duration? Oh, nobody's going to buy him winning, though, are they? Well, true. Um, yeah, you, I'd probably say that they probably would buy um, a Johnson winning, but the problem with that is, like uh, like Jeff just said, he's he's an ultimate warrior, ultimate warrior territory now. Um, I think he gets gassed way too easy, so probably a better spot for him to to leave as soon as he did. Um, up, where we're up to at this point, without jumping the gun too much, you know, I do feel that the ending of this rumble is stacked and and, and much better. And I think you know th- this is this is um, hindering it a lot because uh, they haven't got big guys um, coming in. And who you buying? Uh, who you buying into? Like you just said before, Bob. You know, if they if they would have stacked it at the front end, we probably would have got a better rumble out of it. But yeah, up to this point. I'm 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 still no further along in my uh, acceptance of this rumble, except for the dissension between Owen and Bulldog. Probably just that part. Yeah, probably just that part. I mean, yeah, I, I you know I, as much as Funk would have been a brilliant idea, I don't think I would have left Funk that long with that bigger plateau. I kind of would have got Funk in there a lot earlier, and you know, a rumble's the kind of thing where, you know, not that Funk's out of shape, but if you want him to blow for a bit, you can hide him away and then bring him back later on. You know, Funk, you know, was in at 24. He could have been done a, a bit higher up. Anyway, number 17 is Latin Lover. Lover hits a lovely super, super kick on Owen and then Owen eliminates Gold Dust. 18 is Farouk. In my notes, I've got what happened with him and Armour Johnson because Farouk ran after him about 15 minutes ago, or, or Johnson did, sorry. What happened backstage? We'll never know. Uh, Light and Lover takes around at Farouk, but Farouk throws him over. He gets into it with Austin, and then Ahmed Johnson runs out, hacks your Jim Duggan style with a 2x4, and eliminates Ahmed. Austin bailed under the bottom rope during all of that. He returns and throws out Owen and Mero. Austin is all alone again. 
Entrant number 19 is Savio Vega. Vega catapults into, uh, Austin into the turnbuckles, then hits a wheel kick. That might be all the offence that he gets in. And indeed it is, as Austin throws him over. James comes out. He throws uh, number 20. He throws some horrendous-looking punches. Austin quite rightly responds by eliminating him. And at number 21 is Bret Hart. Austin's facial expressions are on point as Bret comes out. The Brett has Austin locked in a sharpshoot at this point. Uh, Hart sets him to the ring. Brett release, uh, releases the hold, punches Lawler, and then sends him back over the top rope. Lawler is probably back on commentary about 15 seconds after he left it. Another sharpshooter on Austin, and of course he does. Austin signals for a timeout. Number 23 is Diesel. Number 24 is Terry Funk. Funk gets a shocking lack of reaction, at least in the early stages. No music, which probably didn't help. Funk goes after Austin in the corner. Well, the two fans do walk right through shot on the floor section, holding a big long sign that says Amarillo, Texas for Funk. Brett effectively saves Funk from elimination. Funk responds naturally by attacking him. Uh, Wayne, we're... We're building towards the conclusion, and there's, you know, some notable big names left, but this was probably the best quarter of the match so far, would that be fair? Yeah, by far. Uh, I was um, rolling my eyes at the part when Austin was on his own and Savio Vega came down. Um, I thought, you know, I've, I've had to live through this for about 150-odd times within the space of four months, so do I have to really go through it again? But we got past it. It wasn't too bad of a brawl between them two. We got past it. But that part with with Bret Hart when uh, when Austin was on the turnbuckle and and his reaction and then the reaction of uh, of I thought Bret Hart got a, a decent reaction off uh, off for when he came out that moment there was when I was really sold on this rumble um you know I thought it's and and you know it really hot uh, heated up from that part and uh, and hasn't let me down from uh, from from then since either Jeff. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought, uh, you know, the the stuff with Austin and Brett was just uh, electric. It was great. I mean, you know, Austin was so cocky and he was just throwing one guy out, another guy out. I mean, he had such a long feud, an endless feud with Savio Vega. And then, you know, he basically, you know, skirts him out and treats him like a jobber in like 10 seconds, which I thought was great after he, you know, hits him with his finish. He hits him with the flying... uh, the, the flying spin kick, and then Austin just turfs him, which I thought was great. Um, yeah, Austin's facials when he hears Brett's music was were, was just on point. Uh, they trade back and forth. Brett gets the upper hand. Brett gets the sharpshooter. And then Brett's arch rival or old arch rival, Lawler, shows up. And everything just picked up from there. Um, I'm a, Again, I'm like an unabashed Terry Funk fan. I just think the guy is brilliant. And I, all my notes are like, Terry Funk is the best. Terry Funk does the little things so well. I love Terry Funk. I can't believe he's this old and still this good. I mean, he just has the mechanics and the psychology of how to do every little thing down perfectly. And he's he's not even a WWF guy. Like, he's just a freelance independent guy. But everything he does, it's just like he's magnetic and your eyes are drawn to him. And you don't know. He's a loose cannon. He's he's. He is middle-aged and crazy. I, I loved it, and that and the and the kind of the beginning of Austin and Brett I thought was just just great stuff, and it really put the rumble into second gear since it had been in first gear the rest of the, the for the previous you know thirty minutes. 
Yeah, you don't hear more about Terry Funk listen to the, uh, well, Jeff, presumably from Jeff's point of view, the much maligned ECW show from Volume 3 of this month. We look at Funk's role over there. But yeah, I, I'd be uh, I'd be in agreement on, on everything both of you guys said. It, it, it picked up a lot here. Um, I, I liked, you know, the Farouk, again, you know, I, I felt the Farouk Armin angle, like that bit was fine. I just don't know whether I would have had the first bit be so short. Um, but it was good that they kind of got everyone out. Austin ran through Vega, ran through James, two quite quick eliminations. That's the point. You don't mind the flat eliminations when they're like that because the story's about the guy in the ring, not the, the, everyone else is fodder. It's when you've got Henry Godwin coming in and he's just part of the match. It's like, oh. But Austin running through a couple of guys was fine. Brett was pretty perfectly placed in this match. Lawler's involvement was great. Um, and yeah, Funk is fantastic, let's be honest. Uh, anyway. Number 25, the final stretch, it's Rocky Maivia, Brett nearly eliminates Funk. Number 26 is Mankind, Mankind goes after Funk, which is the nice ECW throwback. We've got Austin, Brett, Diesel, Rocky, Mankind and Funk in the ring with four to go. Number 27, another Funk, it's Flash Funk. Brett Pyle drives Austin, Funk comes off the top and wipes out Diesel and Terry Funk. As Jim Ross says, Flash Funk, as you may have noticed, is no relation to Terry. Number 28 is Vader. Austin runs into a roadblock with Vader. 29, Henry O. Godwin. There's a lot of bodies in the ring right now and there's only one big name left. And as they kind of allude to on commentary, we all pretty much know who it is. And number 30, the lights go out, which I felt was a trifle unfair during the Royal Rumble. Uh, but out is The Undertaker. Undertaker goes straight after Vader. Undertaker chokeslams Austin, then Vader. The crowd are very into this. Undertaker goes after Diesel. We then get into the closing stretches. Vader catches, catches Flash Funk going for a crossbody and just lobs him uh, over his head onto the floor. Rocky goes close to eliminating Brett, which gets a reaction. Undertaker throws Godwin over, but Godwin impressively holds on. A minute later, Taker throws him out. We're down to Austin, Brett, Undertaker, Mankind, Rocky, Diesel and Terry Funk before Mankind eliminates Rocky. Mankind does a double clothesline over the top with Funk. Somehow they both hold on, so Mankind then eliminates it a few seconds later. Taker eliminates Mankind, and Mankind and Funk brawl on the outside. And this bit's quite key. This is the conclusion of the match, even with so many guys left in. With Mankind and Funk brawling on the outside, both the referees that are around ringside get drawn to that. So Brett lobs Austin over the top row over the other side. Austin sees what's going on with the rest and just dives back into the ring. He eliminates Taker and Vader. Brett eliminates Diesel. Austin then eliminates Brett. That whole thing takes about 20 seconds. Austin is awarded the victory and Brett is pissed off. Um, Wayne, uh, what well, one general thoughts, but also just the, the point that I, I kind of felt when you look at what they had planned for the finish... I don't necessarily know you needed all of those big names coming out so late, given what they had planned at the end. But but your thoughts on that and on this final bit? Well, I, I, I don't know if I've um, if, I, if I'm you know getting confused with what you're talking about here. But I think the reason that they had the uh, they had the guys at the end is is to obviously book that main event in in, the, in your house pay per view. Are you on about the version your Undertaker and? Yeah, that was yeah. That's a that's a that's a good counterpoint. I just kind of felt like, and you are right, but there was also a thought that you know, if you were going to have such fast finish, you didn't necessarily need to stack all this talent deep because there was no time for a final four really to build. It all happened so quickly. But yeah, good point. Thoughts on the 
main, but well, the last bit basically. Yeah, I th- you know, I thought it was great. Um, it's a shame that we had a, another screwy finish, but um, you know, if the if the rumble match itself were just a screwy finish, I probably wouldn't mind. But the fact that we've had to sit through uh, other matches with with those kind of finishes. Um, you know, takes the shine away a little bit, but uh, yeah, I thought it was, uh, you know, it was great. I thought, um, you know, the elimination of, of Flash Funk as well was was superb. It definitely gets my elimination of the uh, of the night when Vader just does the fall away slam on uh, on him and just throws him over. Um, but the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the fact that Austin, you know, this actually does wonders for uh, for, for for Austin, um, you know, makes him a star. Yes. They've, you know, been been leading up, and you know they give him the the win at King of the Ring, and he's had his matches with with Bret Hart, and they've been putting him on commentary, and, and they've been doing little bits like that, which have been building him up. But this was definitely the making of uh, of, of Steve Austin. Um, I think he was the he was the right winner. I know that Bret Hart was was touted as as being the predictable winner, and if Bret Hart won, he, it probably would have been a bit too predictable. So the fact that they've they've gone down this route with with Steve Austin is you know is a big thumbs up from uh, for, from me. Yeah, I, I think in the what well, in the not zero sum game, I, I think Austin gains a lot more that Bret doesn't this way than the other way round. I don't think Bret gains as much if he wins more than Austin loses if he doesn't win. And I don't explain that very well. I feel like they're both, as a combination, both guys are better off how they did it versus how Austin would have been less well off had he not have won. Yeah. I've just said that enough times, that makes sense. Could I just have one big gripe though? Last year, oh, yes. la- last year, this this was this was a big thing for me because last year's Royal Rumble, yes, it wasn't in the Rumble. It was on the, uh, the free-for-all. But... Unto Selms had a match with uh, with, with Duke Drosser, uh, and there was an issue there with the match where he was due to be given number thirty, and Gorilla Monsoon made a big issue, video replays showing it, um, and he made him go in as number one. Why did we not have that here? Um, I know it's twelve months have passed, and you know it's all storytelling and everything like that. I get that, but it was last year's Royal Rumble for God, for, for goodness' sake. I just it just you know that that was yes. I agree, Austin should have won, but you know the fact that that happened last year was uh, was a big no-no for me. Yeah, uh, a, a good point. It's it's the the reason is is that they they wanted it out for an angle last year and they've otherwise forgotten it. But but yes, that does tie into what we're going to cover on Raw the night after this show. Jeff, thoughts on any and all of the above in the final quarter of the match? Oh uh, yeah, I really loved the finish. I thought it, uh, you know, made Brett look strong enough to have a grudge with Austin, and you know, made Austin just such a great villain. I mean, he 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 was the highlight of the of the match and of the show, and it just it really solidified him as not just a, a viable, you know, authentic threat, but as kind of a, a bad guy. Like it really it really makes him. Well, he's gonna cheat, and he's still gonna win, and he's gonna celebrate. And I I, I thought it was awesome. My only qualm would have been, I mean. I think Funk could have been in a little earlier. I really think there should have been more Mankind in there because he's, again, a really talented guy. And I think you could just have those two just go off and do their own thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the ring. As you saw Austin, you know, bail under the ropes earlier just to take a powder. There's no reason those two couldn't just go do their IWA Japan tribute, not ECW garbage tribute, but their previous deathmatch work. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff between them and the history between them that they could have just, you know, worked off each other with their tremendous chemistry. But uh, altogether, I, I was really pleased with the finish, and I uh, I found myself liking that last third uh, a hell of a lot. Yeah, um, the, the, they got, you know, 
20, this would have been a great 20-man rumble. Um, or sorry, it would have been a very good 20-man rumble. Um, once they once they got through the opening half, and let's be honest, the, the first two thirds of the match we ended with Austin on his own. You know, the there was a you know there was a before that and an after that. They're essentially two separate matches. Austin was just the, the, the lone guy when when Vega came out at 19. Um, and yeah, they just. They got it right. I, I, you know, I mean, we, we talk about people having gripes during the elimination draw at the end. Diesel was involved in all that, and they weren't counting him up for a for, for a title match. Um, and also an interesting note how you know Razor Ramon gets sixty seconds, and the guy that plays Diesel got you know a better part of ten minutes or whatever it was. That's an interesting little note, certainly in that I think the characters are dead, but I've got a feeling the the guy that plays Diesel, who's the guy who used to play Isaac Yankum, they might like. Um, this character ain't going to work, though. Let's be honest about that. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a a more stacked than usual final six, seven, eight, well nine guys of Brett, I suppose, which helped a lot. Um, again, you know, I, I wouldn't have been averse to sending a a mankind in much early doors just so you got someone else to play off of Austin. But I, I think the Jeff, the bigger point is, is that for for any potential qualms in this match, good, bad, or indifferent, they set out essentially to get Austin over, and even with a fuck finish, they very much did that. Yep, I agree. No, I mean if that's your if that's your uh, you know thesis for what you want to do with the Rumble, uh, they accomplished it, and they accomplished it rather you know well. Yeah. Um... You know, Wayne, any more thoughts on, on the match itself? Where does this where does this rumble sit compared to others that we've reviewed or you've seen? Uh, I think it's uh, it, it, it's definitely better than probably the last two years. Um, but again, that's that's not really saying anything about this rumble. Uh, yeah, I, I think we I've seen better in previous years gone by, but it's certainly been better than, than the last couple of years. Jeff, thoughts on that question? Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, I think the last few years had a, the, a similar problem with a lot of gimmick characters who aren't over and a lot of, you know, I think Dory Funk was in last year and he just, you know, kind of Doug Gilbert was in one. I mean, they, they don't really have the depth that they used to and they don't have guys like Hennig and, you know, Rick Martel who can really put in a show um, as, you know, I think I think the rumbles of previous years were a lot more star-studded and probably more entertaining because of that. But the last two years, as Wayne kind of alluded to, we're, we're kind of we're kind of short on a lot of stuff. So yeah, you know, was, the finish was really hot, so I liked it. But uh, I've seen better. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I, I think you know, again, as I kind of said at the top, broad strokes fine. Start to break it down, falls apart a bit. But they set up the next show, which is always a good thing on your pay per view. Um, they Austin left the match a lot more over than he was when he arrived. Uh, he looked really good. Brett looked good. He had a reason for a gripe. And the guys at the back end, you know, even you know, guys like Flash Funk and Rocky Maivia, I think will just help be, you know, other than Henry O'Goblin, there was a lot of star power in this final third. Brett, uh, Brett Funk, Mankind, Vader, Undertaker, Austin. You know, they're talking about trying to push Rocky Maivia. He's helped just being around those guys. So is Flash Funk. That's good. I know. 
Again, interview with Sean on Superstars. Sean says he's got the flu, but he won't let that affect him. We see Sean walking from the back, and the crowd are whipping up with excitement. The camera follows them right through Gorilla, um, and we get a really good reaction. They've got a full pile of rigs out for Sean in the ring. We cut backstage to Sid walking through the back, and he gets a lot of booze. Sean and Sid square off. This has got quite a big fight feel, and for the first time tonight, the fans really are into it. And it's time for the main event. It's Shawn Michaels as Jose Lothario versus Sid for the WWF title. Shawn flies off of the ropes with a crossbody and just rams Sid's head into the mat. The crowd are all over this. Sid slams Shawn into the apron, then goes for a body press, but Shawn slides out. Shawn goes to the top with a shoulder tackle, but Sid just about catches him with a power slam. Pete Lothario is in the front row. I get the feeling this has become relevant. I don't think it does, actually. Uh, Sid locks in a long camel clutch. They've had a guy in the floor section opposite the hard camera all evening holding up an NWO sign, A4 size. Surprised they haven't dealt with that. Sean rallies. I'm not sure a crowd this intense should be subject to a long submission hold. Sid picks up Sean and drives him back first into the ring post. Scrap that. There's two NWO signs opposite the hard camera. Sid wipes out Sean with a clothesline. Another rest hold from Sid. Sean's parents are in the front row, which is a pretty good giveaway of what the match finish is going to be. Sean rallies with an atomic drop, comes off of the second rope and comes back into another bear hug. Sid hits a leg drop, Sean kicks out, Michaels finally rallies and the crowd come alive. We get a body slam and a shoulder tackle, then a kip up and a top rope elbow. Sean starts lining up the switch in music, Sid catches the leg and then throws him to the outside. Sid sets for a powerbomb on the mat and hits it. Lothero, Senior and Junior go after Sid. That's right, Junior does get involved. Uh, Sid backs them off and Sean is up awful fast from that powerbomb onto the mat on the outside. We get a ref bump. Sean, uh, Sid hits the choke slam, puts the pin in, but the ref isn't there. Another one comes out, but Sean kicks out. Sid punches the new ref. Sean grabs the camera, hits Sid over the back, then the front. Sean crawls to the cover, but there's no ref. The ref crawls into position one. Two, Sid kicks out. Very big pop for the near fall there. Sean hits the switch in music. Sid ain't kicking out of this. Another slow count, but there is a big pop, and Sean wins the title. Jeff, thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, uh, it was a match for the title. Um, you know, it, I, I felt that considering that Sid almost killed Shawn Michaels' mentor, maybe they don't just have a regular match. Um, as the follow-up, especially in Texas. And if Sean really has a flu, and I can put quotations in that if you want to read into it or whatever, but uh, I think you could play up the revenge factor by booking this as like a Texas death match or a street fight to really smoke and mirrors the things that Sean can't do to protect Sid from looking like, well, the limited Sid that Sid is, and it becomes less bump-heavy. I mean, it was a shorter match than it probably should have been. Uh, didn't really have the drama didn't really feel like Shawn Michaels was putting in his full performance that he is capable of, and Sid isn't capable of much. Um, you know, nice pop at the end, but overall it was just kind of ho-hum for me. Why? I didn't mind this. Um, yes, it wasn't as good as what they put on at Survivor Series, but um, whether Jeff believes he's, he's ill or not, I, you know, I don't think we had 100% Shawn Michaels in there, uh, and I did, you know, I do think that's... Uh, uh, that didn't help it out a little bit, but uh, but no, for, for you know for what they put on, uh, how long was it? Was it sixteen uh, minutes? Jeff, you got the time? Are you? I was like thirteen minutes. Yeah, change for um, you know for that reason, um, you know I, I, I think they put on a you know 
was it a clinic? No, but I, you know, I think it was it, it was good for all the circumstances involved. Um, I think it was a nice touch that Sean used the you know the camera um, to to as a bit of a throwback to Survivor Series, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all, all in all, you know, I didn't mind it. I think the fact that they probably would have put on a bit longer, as uh, which made, you know, which would have made the rumble shorter, I, I would imagine, and, and we'd probably have a, be having a different discussion about the rumble. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't mind this too much, and you know, Sean was always going to win. It was it was his homecoming. The only thing I, you know, I can think of is. You know, if only Vader won at SummerSlam and he held it all this way to 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 Royal Rumble, would would we be more invested? And I can't help to think that we probably would be. Yeah, no, I, I don't necessarily think that's a that's a bad interpretation. I mean, I, you know, if we're going to talk about sixty-two thousand fans in attendance, this was the match to talk about it in in that. This was the only match that felt like a massive deal just because there were so many guys involved. And this had a big fight feel to it. They showed Sean walking through from the back and the crowd saw him on the screen. There was a big reaction. And then Sean gets in the ring, does all this stuff, and then we cut back again to Sid. And the minute Sid comes on screen, there's big booze. And that had to be a concern. And it should have, it would have been a bad sign had they been booing Sean and cheering Sid to whatever degree. But if they'd have had like 10, 20% of the problems they'd have had at Solaris, they would have had a lot of problems. Um, Mercy didn't, um, you know, whether Sean was putting on the cold thing or not, I mean, if ever there's a night for Sean to turn up, you know, without any attitude, this would be the one. Um, winning the title back in your own town, prove a point, see what kind of match you can get out of Sid in, in this kind of situation. Um, so that didn't stick um, quite as well as it should have done. I just kind of felt that for such a big match, there were far too many rest holds. Like, the crowd were hot. I don't know why they were so worried about trying to calm them down. Could have had more of a brawling type match, more of a match akin to what they had at Survivor Series. I think that would have worked. But um, Jeff, I, I think for for all the potential qualms of the match itself, I thought the final couple of minutes were really quite good. With you know Sean perhaps popping up a bit too quickly, um, but they got a really nice near fall out of it, and then uh, a big pop from the crowd when Sean won. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, his entrance and his his win were certainly over with the crowd. I just, I think. One of my major hangups is that I just think Sid has so many limitations, and uh, you know, as good as Michaels, as great as Michaels is in the ring, I don't feel like he brings out a lot in Sid to really make it, you know, top tier. It did have a big fight feel to it, as you said, but once the bell rings, you know, you're stuck with Sid having, you know, a cobra clutch and doing these moves that are just like asininely, you know, boring and dull, and then he does his high spots and almost kills the guy. And for me, I think, you know, if you're not, if you're having that kind of match, you're just kind of going with that old Vince McMahon style. And I think it, I think it does, doesn't do HBK justice in the long run. And I don't know, I just, I, I, my issue with this match wasn't necessarily with Sean, you know, it was just, I just, I'm kind of over Sid and just, yeah, it just, it was short. And, and also, you know, Sid's such a monster and, and Michaels just kind of fights on the same, you know, pathway. Like, he doesn't really seem to fight too much like an underdog, too much. They refer to him as, like, a pit bulldog a lot. I don't know. I just – it doesn't do it for me. The whole feud hasn't – I think maybe I'm soured on it because I wanted more Vader and Michaels. But uh, overall, yeah, I, I, I'm a hard pass on the whole thing. But I'm, I, I thought Michaels was over. It's just – yeah, I'm, I'm not a Sid guy. 
Wayne, overall thoughts on the show and a score out of 10? Um, like I said at the start, uh, when I finished it, I thought, you know, that wasn't so bad. But, you know, as we started the recording, I thought, oh, there's, there's certain points that I forgot about. And, uh, yeah, for that reason, I did have it as, uh, as a six and a half slash seven. Um, but I'm going to be putting it down to uh, uh, two or five. And the main reason is for everything that we've covered off. A lot of screwy finishes. Um, uh, a rumble that was probably less to be desired for the first half slash three quarters. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, the fact that we had that triple A match, that there was uh, there was no buy into it at all. Jeff? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the Austin stuff was great. And everything else was just kind of, it looked good on paper, but didn't really, you know, in execution achieve much. I'd say like four out of ten, maybe three and a half out of ten. I, yeah, nothing really stuck out to me. I didn't, I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah, um, I was a bit repulsive on this show. Maybe just because more, I, I, I felt like this was, you know, an hour and a half, just shy of an hour and a half of a below average show, but in front of a, uh, a crowd that made it feel like a big, even they weren't all over it. I thought the rumble was pretty good, actually, um, even though it took a while. Um, and I like the main event just because any, a bit like Starcade, and, and this match was nowhere near as bad as Hogan and Piper, but any match kind of main event where it feels like there's a big fight feel, and we don't get that anywhere near enough in wrestling. And, but with Shawn Michaels in his hometown chasing the title against Sid, the main event felt like a bigger deal. I'll give this show a 6 out of 10. You know, when I decided to come back to the World Wrestling Federation, you promised me that I would get an opportunity to fight for the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt. You put me in the ring with Stone Cold Steve Austin and said that if I could beat Stone Cold Steve Austin, that I would be the number one contender for the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt. Now, don't you think it's just a little bit convenient that for some stupid reason, Shawn Michaels finds himself out at ringside announcing in my world championship match with Psycho Sid. I don't think it was any kind of a coincidence either. So Shawn Michaels jumps up and sticks his nose in my business and costs me the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt with blatant interference. The boy toy cost me the championship, and they go, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it, because now you can go in the Royal Rumble, and you only have to fight 29 other guys, and then you'll get your opportunity for the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt. So I went in the ring, and it's very, very clear to me that I won the Royal Rumble, and I should be getting a World Wrestling Federation Championship belt. Where is my opportunity? No, 
way I look at things right now, I've been screwed by Shawn Michaels, the boy toy. I've been screwed by Stone Cold Steve Austin. I've been screwed by the World Wrestling Federation. And I've been screwed by you. idle threats, but the way I see things, it doesn't look like I'm going to get my opportunity for a shot at the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt, so I quit. On the January 20th Raw, we start with Brett coming to the ring in his skivvies. Brett tells us he won the Royal Rumble. He's been screwed by everybody, including Vince. Brett decides he will never get another title shot, so he quits the WWF. Austin then gets in the ring and says Brett came back. He's, since he came back, he's done nothing but cry. He demands that Monsoon brings The Undertaker's dead ass out here, which is indeed our scheduled main event. His plea is met with silence, but Vince leaves the comfy position and walks to the back. Our first match is a non-title affair between Owen and Bulldog and first and Fon. After 10 minutes of terrific action, Owen clocks the Fon in the face with a slammy, allowing Bulldog to hit the running power slam and get the pinfall. Fruit then beats Bart Gunn with the Dominator. Vince returns to Gorilla Monsoon in tow. Gorilla calls the Royal Rumble a travesty, but referee's decisions are final, so Austin won the match. However, he's not getting a title shot. Next month, there'll be a number one contender, four-man, no-DQ match between The Undertaker, Brett, Vader and Austin. Brett accepts. It's also an elimination match, I believe, as well. Austin comes out and reminds us that Brett has quit. We have no instant replay rule in the WWF, although we did a year before at the Royal Rumble, if you remember that. Gorilla is really a jackass. Austin threatens Gorilla, then Brett comes back through the crowd. He grabs a mic and accepts, then starts rumbling with Austin until they are pulled apart. Undertaker and Brett then get into it before the main event. The match itself with Austin and Undertaker is fun brawl. Austin hits a stunner but can't cover. After a few minutes, both Vader and Brett hit the ring and all four men go at it to end the show. The final roar of this month kicks off with Ahmed Johnson against Crush. We see footage of Savio Vega seemingly turning heel on Ahmed in a tag match against the Nation uh, on Shotgun Saturday night on Saturday. Farouk eventually interferes and attacks Ahmed on the outside. Crush then executes the heart punch and secures the three count. Shaw is interviewed in ring by Vince. We learn that at Thursday Raw Thursday, as Sean calls it on the 13th of February, Sean will defend the title against Sid. Sean tells us he won't. He will hold onto the belt by hook or by crook. If being bad is going to make me great, then being bad is what I'm going to be. Vince invites Brett out. Brett tells Sean to do whatever he can to retain the title next month, and then Brett wants Sean 100%. He even goes so far as to say he'll be watching Sean's back. 
Undertaker's out next. He tells Brett he has his respect, but he's sick of Brett talk about being screwed. Sean, that belt and your body will belong to me. Here comes Austin. JR interviews him in the aisle. I see three crybabies and a little boy blue. Vader blocks the entrance ray. Austin briefly tempts himself heading to ringside and walks off. George acts with Vader and we cut away. British Bulldog takes on Doug Furness in singles action. We see Ahmed breaking into the nation uh, domination's changing room, but it's empty. Bulldog wins with the 1992 SummerSlam pinning combination, but afterwards he's not happy about Owen's interference. Clarence Mason eventually calms him down and the two shake hands. Vader and Mankind team up to face the Godwins as someone who's quite a big fan of WCW from 1993. Not particularly happy about that. Mankind accidentally clocks Vader with a chair. Not that he particularly seems upset by it. And the Godwins win by countout as we finish the month. Hold it, Monsoon! In Chattanooga. Hey! Vince McMahon may be going to join us again. I'm not sure. I don't guess you heard you. I don't guess you heard what Bret Hart said, son. You can't have a four-way match because Bret the Hitman Hart just walked out. Right, he quit. It can't happen. Quitter. Before you yank the carpet out from under me, let me ask you one question. Do we have the instant replay rule here in the WWF? No. I no, think yeah, that's not. Right. He's right. Look at me when I'm talking to you. You sit there and call yourself the gorilla. Yet you hee-haw out here like a jackass. Woo-hoo! Well, can't talk to the president like that. There ain't no way I should be in this match. I threw 29 pieces of trash over the top rope. And if that's what it's going to take, I'll get in your little four-way match myself. The bottom line is, son, when I get through with them four, I'll toss your carcass around the arena. Whoa! So we can come out of the TVs. Uh, we're going to have a quite an in-depth look at the Raw on the 20th of January because a lot happens. Uh, and then we're going to have a quick chat about uh, Raw potentially going to two hours. Possibly that is next week. Uh, I have read Monday, February the 3rd. Uh, I haven't had that confirmed yet, but we, we may be dealing with two-hour Raws as of next week. Anyway, 20th of January Raw. We start with a very, very cold open as Brett just walks out. You've heard both of these promo bits uh, I might splice uh, another one in, but you've heard Brett and Austin by now. Brett says he won the Rumble. He'd get screwed by everyone, including Vince, so he quits. Um, we're going to Austin come in, um, and Austin says Brett's been a crybaby, etc., etc., and Austin's basically demanding everything and all of that. Um, and Vince just buggers off, and then we'll, we'll come to the resolution in a bit. Uh, Jeff, uh, as, as rule segments go, this was pretty strong from both Brett and from Austin. Yeah, I thought it was great. It really, you know, sets the groundwork to, for a lot of stuff going forward. I think there's a an air of realism when, you know, they're doing the, the cold open with Ross and, and, and McMahon and Lawler, and all of a sudden Brett just comes out and he promos. I, I think you get that legitimacy with Brett when he comes across as really self-righteous and disgruntled. We all know he was wronged. You know, he's morally in the right. He's so outraged and so furious but the fans are starting to like kind of that outlaw Austin, so it's kind of like, you know, quit whining. But he's right. And I, I, I really like the the contrast when you have Austin and his promos and how how vicious he's coming across. It just it's really hot and it's a great program and both of them are just are just tailor made for each other. Brett's, you know, the good guy, the sheriff, and, and Austin's the outlaw, and it just it plays perfectly for me. I loved it. What? 
yeah, I, I can't disagree really. I thought it was, uh, you know, it was it was a great start to, to Raw. It, you know, it made uh, it made Austin, you know, even more of a star than than what the Rumble did. Um, I think Bret Hart did uh, did very well with his promo. In fact, you know, one of the things you mentioned before was, you know, Bret Hart is in his promos is coming across as forced, whereas the Stone, um, whereas Steve Austin's a bit more natural. He's just you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin is just Steve Austin turned, you know, with the, with the amp turned up, uh, you know, to 11. Um, whereas, you know, Bret Hart's forced. I think his sit-down interview that he had when he come back, when Austin was in the, um, in Stamford, Connecticut, I think he was, and uh, Bret Hart, that was forced. But this tonight was, I think it's one of the best promos I've seen Bret Hart uh, give, in all honesty. I think it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I know I was a bit critical earlier about Brett's perhaps forced changing attitude, and to a point I'd still go with that, but I think this, uh, this was the time where it made sense. This was the time I was like, okay, I, you know, Brett's got a very good reason to be upset. That at least makes sense. Um, and Austin just, you know, it, it kind of it takes us back to the Austin character we've really seen since that, that ECW run. This feels very believable, and it kind of feels like Austin's just doing his own thing. I don't know, he's not. Um, but Austin comes out, and like at the moment, every time Austin comes out, you're like, okay, this is going to be fun. Um, and there aren't many guys, you know, I, I've got a lot of time for Brett, but sometimes Brett will come out for an interview, you're like, oh, here we go. Michael's is a bit the same, depending on what he's got to say. Austin right now is the only guy, you know, really in this company. He's kind of got that that Scott Hall type vibe going for him, where it's like every time he comes out and says something, you think this will be fun. This is, you know, this is the guy that I feel like is acting on another level to anyone else. Um, and that's really good. Anyway, we get a really nice, quite long match between Owen Bulldog and Furnace and Lafon. Not the best side for Furnace and Lafon. They lost not only this match, but also the singles match uh, one of them had. I think it was Furnace with Bulldog the following week. Not the best side, you know. Both, yeah, both. I, I figured, they, they said at the start, non-title match. I'm like, right, okay, Furnace and Lafon will win this and we'll set up a title match. They didn't. Not the best side. Uh, we get a fruit match. Uh, I, I'm kind of reading through notes you'd already heard. Uh, anyway, the, the other part really of this show is basically the rest of the show because it leads into the main event. Grim Monsoon comes out and basically, as Wayne Cart rightly pointed out earlier, you know, referees see the final. Well, they weren't final last year, Gorilla. You were involved, but you know, as I say, WWF will forget these things when it suits them. Um, he says Austin won the match and he is the winner of the Royal Rumble, but he's not getting a title shot straight away. And it sets up the match next month, the uh, the Four Corners elimination match. I don't take a Brett, Austin, and if he accepts Brett. Austin comes out, mouse off at Brett. Um, well, well, you'll have heard that. I think I'd have bridged out the other side of the TV reviews. Um, says Gorillas of Jackass, etc., etc. Uh, then out comes Brett. He goes back to the crowd, basically where he came. He accepts the match and starts brawling with Austin until they're pulled apart. Uh, we then kind of segue into the main event between Undertaker and Brett, uh, Undertaker and Austin, sorry, and that breaks down when Vader and Brett hit the ring, and we finish with a four-way brawl. Um, Jeff, I think this is the best they've done in the three and a half years that I've been covering Raw for this show in presenting a group of guys like they want the title and like they're all going towards the same goal. What I think we've seen far, far too often from the WWF is... You know, Diesel's champion, he's a face. So Brett can't challenge him for the title, therefore he's not interested. Sean, similar type of thing. We'll just set these up with the next biggest heel. 
Jeff, this felt like the the first time they've really gone, right, these are all our main eventers. They've all got a gripe with each other. They've all got their own similar goal. Let them at it. And I think it's the, the, the best presentation of a main event they've done or a main event picture. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, any one of those four guys as your champion is a really strong champion. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of using the, the Vader of old as the template, you know, next to the other three, but I think all four are so strong and so believable that it, you kind of just, there's a lot of intrigue. And again, it, you know, you, you said it, McMahon always books that, you know, baby face on top to slay the dragon heels. And whether it's Diesel or Shawn Michaels or Hogan or whoever, there's always that, that simple formula that gets really redundant at times. And, to, to book it, to have four guys all vying for the shot or the, you know, whatever it's going to end up being, you know, they all want it and it makes, it, it feels legitimate. It feels authentic. It's, that's the, that's what you want after your world title picture. What? Yeah, I think it was a perfect follow-up to uh, to the ending of the Rumble, in all honesty. Um, you know, like, like, you know, like you just pointed out there, we've got four guys here who are viable champions. Um, you know, it's not a case of just putting, uh, uh, you know, a face with, uh, with with a big heel. You know, your Diesel against your King Mabels, your Bret Hart's versus your Yokozunas. You've got four guys here, a mixture of uh, face and heels, who are just all going for the same things. They've all got the same vision. They all want that championship gold. And, uh, you know, it's very, very believable. And I think it's also a good thing as well that would, you know, Maybe starting to see a bit of a bit of a shift in in the way that the not that the booking's going, but the way that uh, you know the, the vision of WWF that you can have these kind of matches now where it's not just you know a big face against a, you know a, a big heel, um, you're having all these guys going at it to each other, and you know the fact that there's there's that little shift there is um, you know is, is, is you know going to be an interesting watch, I'd imagine that, and you know. I'd, I'd, if you're bringing it up later on, apologies that I'm, you know, stepping on your toes here, Bob. But the fact that the can are now making a bit of a reference of Vince McMahon and he's the go-to guy, not not Gorilla Monsoon, we're kind of seeing a bit of an Eric Bischoff uh, uh, character shift here as well, I believe. Yeah, a little. Um, I, I think we, we, we kind of saw it on Livewire. I remember when we were going through that. It's, like it's the first time they've really presented Vince as anything more than an announcer. Um, and interesting, Gorilla's still the guy, but when stuff went down, Vince went backstage to you know do some non-commentary stuff. We've never really seen that before. Vince McMahon, the, the on-air character, has always been this passive observer. He's been the guy that when stuff happens, he acts a bit shocked and then he pivots into the next thing. Now something's going down and Vince is backstage making decisions. And, you know, I I think enough people know the story to know Vince McMahon is what it is. I don't think if they pivot Vince McMahon into the the kind of level of authority that Eric Bischoff does, I don't think they're going to turn him heel, but if if they pivot him into a similar level of authority... I don't think it would be quite as jarring as Bischoff to the audience in the sense that I think a lot of people know that McMahon's name's on the building. You know what I mean? Um, But, yeah, I I think that's a a little interesting note. But, yeah, just, you know, they've... It's going to snowball into the discussion we're going to have now, but every, you know, they just need more star power. I know that's a really obvious thing to say, but they could do with finding a way of getting a few more guys over like this rather than operating with two or three guys in the main event scene. You know, they've got about six, maybe seven. You've got the four guys here. You've got Sid, Sean, and Mankind. You could get one or two more there. Get an Ahmed Johnson there. Maybe get a Hunter Hearst Helmsley in that mix as well. 
then you've got enough, you know, and I guess to a point, if everyone's main event is, you know, some will struggle to stand out, I guess that is a fair point. But if they could get to that point, they'd be able to field TV a bit more because this kind of show's great, but as we've as we've seen, and it's it's some criticism given that some of the shows six, seven months ago were dross, but we're seeing now the occasional big live show after a pay-per-view, they just throw everything at it. They kind of throw the playbook out the window. And one thing I thought, um, wait, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I thought the cold open was quite reminiscent. Oh, I say quite reminiscent. It, exactly the same thing happened on Nitro at the same time. But it felt like a Nitro-like segment in the... Nitro have been really good, certainly the last six months, of presenting stuff that feels out of kilter. Feels like, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Raw, whenever they do, whenever they've done a big angle, it's been, oh, we're going to promote a traditional Bret Hart interview. What's Bret going to say? And they'll promote it for weeks on end, you know, and they'll they'll do these big angles, but they'll signpost them. This felt like a, a Nitro angle. You've got the guys out at the start, Vince, Ross, and Lawler, doing their usual pre-show stuff. And then Brett just walks out. Wayne, uh, uh, you know, uh, they borrowed more broadly from the WCW playbook uh, while WCW were doing the same thing with Savage on Nitro. But I felt like that was a positive thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, uh, I think it only goes to show from when uh, Scott Hall made his debut um, and, you know, how that has snowballed and how WWF took a hit in the ratings. Something needed to happen. I think, you know, for as much as we've lambasted WCW for uh, um, for copying WWF in, in, and, and using some of those stars and, and, and rehashing old storylines uh, with the likes of Hulk Hogan, um, I think this is probably something that WWF have needed to follow suit because it's just the way that the market's going at the moment. And we snowball in, you know, really the context around this, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Ratings for this show were not great. They threw a lot at this, uh, and WCW still kind of crushed them. The uh, the return of Savage didn't help. Um, uh, uh, and that kind of hot 15 minutes open to Nitro. You hear all about that in Volume 2, Part 1. Yeah, it's right for the clash. So we discuss all that there. Um, but Jeff, we're pivoting into now the news that Raw from next month will very likely be two hours. I mean, there was going to be a two-hour show anyway. The Thursday Raw, the week of the pay-per-view, was was set up as, a, I think it's a live, but certainly a two-hour show. And Jeff, the big question is, is that this kind of show that we've just talked about looks really good because they're like, right, we've got 45 minutes, we're going to throw everything at the wall, we're going to do all this blockbuster action. And then you watch Raw the following week and it's like, oh, well, this is Ahmed Johnson and Crush for 10 minutes. This is a bit less good. I guess the big concern is, how are they going to fill two hours every week? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the major hang-ups that, you know, WWF has right now, I mean, you could beat this dead horse a little more, is, you know, when it, it speaks to roster depth. And when you look at how WCW can furnish two hours, you've got the cruisers, and I think you've got a deeper tag division. I think if you go around the indies and kind of look around, I don't know, ECW or whoever, and and pick apart some tags and some flyers. Again, I'm not saying copy everything Nitro does, but, you know, a tag division that's more than just Davey and Owen, you know, is a start. Because, again, you're getting your maybe less complete talents, uh, you know, that you're protecting them by putting them with somebody else. Uh, yeah, you know, you deal with some more flyers. I think, I, like I said, Hector Garza, 
um, there's a way to bolster your your menu of talent by you know giving different flavors, and that's one of the reasons WCW's had such great success with Nitro. Um, so that's where I think you add if you put in two hours, you bolster your kind of weakest parts, and I think that's with your alternative talents, which would be your flyers and your your tag division, which has been dead for years. Yeah, we, we hear about. Harlem Heat and then not potentially bringing them in you feel like the Heat would be a really really good addition to a two hour Raw like uh, a really good really quite well defined pair of performers that if we're going to ta- start talking about longer matches like you know you start talking about a tag division with Harlem Heat, Furnace and Lafon and Bulldog and Owen there's potential there you're like you know then you you call up the Eliminators from ECW all of a sudden you've got this quite mishmash tag division but they're all quite talented um, and then you look at, you know, but yeah, I think, well, I think, Jeff, where you're right is that I wouldn't, um, let me think about this. WCW has more star power than WWF right now. Not significantly, but I think they do. I think WWF's probably got a more talented top end of roster, but WCW is just more tenured. But I think, Jeff, you're right. The big difference isn't really at the top. The point is, is that as hard as WCW have tried, and as, as much as they mix up the format, you cannot fill two hours of TV every week just with the big guys, as much as you might focus on them. You've still got probably an hour of every show that you've got to fill with some other stuff. And WCW have done a good job of, you know, stringing together some small stories, but kind of more the point, just having good action. WWF don't have that enough. Uh, Wayne, your thoughts? Yeah, like, I, I totally agree with Jeff, really. Uh, I think WWF will really struggle uh, with the two-hour format. Um, just for, for, for those reasons, um, like Jeff just pointed out, you know, WCW do it so well with the way that they split it up with the cruiserweights. Um, they have got depth on the I think they've got... Um, I, won't, I, I won't say higher quality... Um, top end because you know your, your Bretts, your Shawns, your Undertakers, your Vaders could uh, could be seen to go up against the likes of the you know the Nashes, the Hogans, the Savages, etc. But I think they've just got a bit more depth at the uh, at the top end. Um, you know you could probably say that you know the likes of believable champions. You know we've only listed off what five for WWF. You know you you could throw others in in the hat there as well with your Lugas, your Giants. Even Scott Hall as well, uh, in in that sense, I think they've got more depth at that end. They've got more depth of uh, of you know mid card with the cruiserweights in in mind. They do it really well. I just can't see WWF doing it that well at all. I think the one thing that two hours is going to help them with, and they've got to be good at it because you know it can also go wrong. Because we, as we saw last year, forty five minutes they really struggled at times. Two hours gives them a lot more time to get over this mid-card. It's one thing WCW don't do a brilliant job of. You know, WCW, and to a point, they've got such a hot, big angle, they can just keep going to that well. But two hours is mainly focused around the same 10, 12 guys. The rest of it's just filler. WWF, I think, need to be a bit more... We've got two hours. We don't want to overload people with the same guys. Let's use this time to build, to flesh out these mid-card acts. They've got a lot of new and exciting talent, new-ish talent. Use it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, the two-hour thing is interesting. I understand that, they, you know, 
And to a point, they, they asked for it when they when they moved from 9 till 10 to 8 till 9. You went from competing with the second hour of Nitro to then competing with the first. And then, as they as we said in the news, they're kind of, you know, the problem now is that they're just a brilliant lead-in for the second hour of Nitro. Nitro does its own quite good rating opposite Raw. Raw finishes, and then quite a few people turn over Raw and watch the rest of Nitro, which is why Nitro's second hour is much better than the first, amongst other reasons. I don't think the audience is as, as crossed over as some people might think. Um, but it's just got to, for it to work, they've got to, you know, they've got to use two hours wisely. They've got to try and make it work. But I think it will help, as we kind of said in the news, that, you know, it is going to be more expensive. And who knows where the funding's going to come from. I'm assuming the, the network will pay for some of it. But it will mean they're live more often because they have to be. Um, and it's not necessarily to say that people necessarily rate live TV better than they do taped, but you can you don't need to be an expert to be able to tell which shows are taped. You can just sense it just by the, the level of stuff that's going on. The fact that taping a two-hour show means they can't take four shows in one night. At worst, they'll probably have to take once every other week, one live, one taped. That's better, because they'll be live more often, which means there'll be more stuff happening on the fly. Nitro's worked really well in part because it's live. They can do a lot of stuff on the move. That's good. They've got more time. That's good. But as we saw last year, I have to go back six or seven months. They were dragging with 45 minutes. They're in a better spot now. Austin's in a really good place. They've rebooted Vader a bit. They've got Undertaker where he needs to be. Brett's got a bit more of an edge. Sean's where he is. Sid wasn't around six months ago. And you've got these other guys kind of bubbling under. But that, but an hour and a half is a long time. Every single week. I think it's just right. They're going to need something else. Um, if I got clearance for the second hour of Raw, I might pick up the phone to Harlem Heat and say, let's talk about those guaranteed contracts again. We could deal with you here. Tag team division of Owen and Bulldog, Furnace Lafon, Harlem Heat and the Eliminators is pretty damn exciting. Uh, so we'll see about that. Anyway, that will wrap up this month's show. Firstly, a big thank you to Wayne Lithgow. Wayne, thank you very much. Thanks very much again, Bob. Uh, Wayne, you can be found on Twitter. I can. It's WayneL84. Excellent. And Jeff Parker. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I had a really fun time. Excellent, excellent. Jeff, uh, well, we know you, you Well, you can't be found on Twitter anymore. We dealt with that before. Uh, so, yeah, I will wrap up the rest of the show. Firstly, to say uh, we are on Patreon for five bucks a month if you'd like early access where possible to our shows. You can do so by donating five bucks a month at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs. Or if you'd just like to say thank you for our contribution to your podcasting month, more on, on that link or on our website or in the podcast description. Uh, we have three other shows for you this month across two other volumes. This was volume one. Volume 2 Part 1 looks at WCW, the lead-up to The Clash and The Clash. Volume 2 Part 2 looks at NWO sold out. Fucking hell, what a show that is. Uh, and also the rest of uh, the final Nitro of the month and all the WCW news. And Volume 3, we take our latest trip to ECW. Anyway, uh, you can find more information on the website at wrestling20rs.com. As I say, I've been Bob Bamba. This has been the Volume 1 of the January 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.